Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com They fully understand exactly what they need to do. If their fear, white fear, see, and we always, in all the articles about black men being shot, what do they say? Black teenager does not have weapons. Big white man with guns, eight white men with guns. Maybe some of them have two guns and a taser. And I was afraid. Isn't that what they say? Yep. What are they? So I had to shoot him 16 times. I was so afraid. What am I afraid of? Not man with glasses, class. <laughs> Diagram of male genitalia. Testicle, phallus. What is in the testicles? The genetic material. Now, if we just learned our history and stayed familiar with our history, Right after emancipation, so-called, where the black people were offered the plantations and could walk around a little bit. Then they started, what? Chasing down black men, lynching, and castrating. Is that right? What is castrating? Cutting off 
the genitals and the testicles. See, white people would cut it off and take it home. Cut it off and eat it. Let me ask you all this. I was talking to one of my sisters last night. I said, what are the most expensive foods in the world? That's a question, class. <laughs> what are the most expensive foods in the world? Okay, he can get uh, A. That's one, right? Go, class. <laughs> Truffles, caviar, not oysters, and chocolate. Now, isn't this, this is the most important stuff that they can... You know, if you're really rich, you can buy some black, little black caviar, eggs, and take them in. What's the guy's name on the TV who's um, Morning Joe? Huh? Scarborough, okay. Now, do you know... What is Joe? Coffee. And who is Joe? Oh, black Joe. I got I mean that's why Starbucks is a billionaire company. I got to be putting some of that black stuff in. Uh, I can't get started. If somebody were to say to Joe Scarborough, you're talking about taking in old black Joe. <laughs> I remember in the Second World War, my dad was in the war. We, Why do you call it Joe? Dad said, it stands for old black Joe. <laughs> See, that was the most important thing in the Army, your coffee. Morning Joe, you know, right? See, all of this stuff is connected. And this is why I was afraid, white fear. I was afraid of the black man. See, there's no history. There's no history on the planet of black men attacking white men's genitals. Context of white supremacy, Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, February 24th, 2017. So I have been told this is our fifth study session on the late Vincent Woodard's The Delectable Negro Human Consumption and Homoeroticism in U.S. Slave culture. Uh, We're picking up on chapter three, a tale of hunger retold, ravishment and hunger in F. Douglas's life and writing, Frederick Douglass. We are close to the end of the third chapter 
Uh, so you just have to uh, pick up where we uh, left off at talking about uh, Douglas's admiration for Abraham Lincoln. Uh, the only thing I'll say that was the late Dr. Frances Cress Welsing from her final lecture at the Welsing Institute. I thought that put things in the proper context going into today's program that maybe some of this uh, consumption uh, is rooted in melanin deficiency. Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. Moving forward, the delectable Negro. Audio segment number one, context of white supremacy. A part of what made Lincoln so attractive to Douglas was the president's apparent commitment to freeing enslaved persons. Both Tubman and Brown of sacred memory sacrificed their lives for enslaved persons. It is something of the slave in Douglas, the one who has not to not has had to constantly battle for freedom and a place to rest, who sees finally in Lincoln the maternal bosom, an emblem of a final resting place. He relates to Lincoln as a romanticizing male child to a male-to-female romantic object. Lincoln is in turn depicted as male patriarch, as maternal figure, as fecund female earth. The undercurrent of mother hunger blurs gender boundaries and causes Douglas to transfer to Lincoln a measure of unrequited love and feelings of mother loss. Descriptions of Miss Lucretia Auld years earlier on the Auld Plantation prefigure his descriptions of Lincoln. Miss Auld, he writes, had bestowed upon me such words and looks as taught me that she pitied me if she did not love me. In a related instance aboard a steamer, Douglas encounters Edward Marshall, a California congressman. He describes Marshall in terms that are both deific and evoke the natural world. The catalyst for Douglas when describing Marshall in this manner is a racist incident aboard the steamer. The captain orders Douglas to be physically removed from the dining room. Marshall rebuffs the steward with eyes full of fire. Douglas sees lightning flash and imagines this saving individual as a deity of the sky with golden hair and fiery eyes, whose voice resounded like a clap of summer thunder. In this instance, Douglas casts himself in the most effeminate role, describing Marshall as chivalrous, gallant, and possessed of generous and manly qualities. Not coincidentally, Marshall has just come from Kentucky, where he visited his black mammy. I was nursed at the breast of a colored mother, he admits. Both Lincoln and Marshall intervene on behalf of the freed slave. Their allegiance to abolitionism evokes in Douglas romantic feelings that range from the maternal caste to a glorification of the white male as the emblem of the natural world and the natural order of things. Marshall does not take on the sacred significance and emotional completement of the black mother. Instead, black mother as emblem of infantile hunger, the white man nursing at the black woman's breast, is cause for shared affection between the two men. Douglas was in a phase of his life when he believed that proximity to black nobility and empathy could change whites. 
he would realize, though, after finding out about Lincoln's support of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, that northern whites had used him in the enslaved person's cause to further their nationalist and other political aims. At the undraping of a burst bust carved in Lincoln's honor years later, Douglas would describe Lincoln not as a caring, valiant, romantic object, but as one who had betrayed his love and affections. Speaking before hundreds of white persons at this honorary occasion, Douglas regrettably reminds those gathered of Lincoln's hypocrisy and willingness to sacrifice black people. He says, He was ready to execute all the supposed guarantees of the United States Constitution in favor of the slave system anywhere inside the slave states. He was willing to pursue, recapture, and send back the fugitive slave to his master, and to suppress a slave rising for liberty through his, though his guilty master were already in arms against the government. Lincoln's willingness to send a fugitive slave back to his master was most painful to Douglas, who was himself an escaped slave. In this public address, Douglas speaks about how he, as a representative of the slave experience, felt betrayed by one he was so willing to love, admire, and seek solace in. Speaking to his white fellow citizens, Douglas admonishes, First, midst and last, you and yours were the objects of his deepest affection and his most earnest solicitude. You are the children of Abraham Lincoln. We are at best only his stepchildren, children by adoption, children by forces of circumstances and necessity. To you it especially belongs to sound his praises, to preserve and perpetuate his memory, to multiply his statues. Douglas speaks of white people as children, Lincoln's true children, and of black people as stepchildren. This statement harkens back to the problematic issue of kinship between white and black men during slavery. Douglas is a free man, a man of agency and affluence, but still the historical problem of relatedness and all of its emotional and sexual implications bear down upon him in the present. It is during slavery that the orator first develops the habit of romanticizing and identifying himself with the white male aristocracy. When he leaves the Kobe plantation, he contrasts Kobe's membership in the demeaned overseer class to that of a Mr. Freeland. Freeland acts towards him with the sentiment of honor, a sense of justice, and a feeling of humanity. Mr. Freeland belongs to that class of slaveholder admired and affectionately thought of by the slaves. Slaves were not. Douglas notes, insensible to the whole soul qualities of a generous, dashing slaveholder who was fearless of consequences, and they preferred a master of this bold and darking kind, even with the rise of being shot down for imprudence. Following this logic of arist aristocratic refinement, one can understand how Douglas found in Lincoln the perfect embodiment of the ennobled father figure. In reality, Lincoln's response to black people ranged from repulsion 
to exotic fascinations. He enjoyed minstrel culture and had minstrel troops come to the White House to entertain him and also was known to attend shows when he visited Chicago. Most whites presume that white blood gave the Negro higher intelligence, beauty, and more evolved sensibilities. The very high cultural standards that Douglas used to distinguish himself from the base Negro are the same standards that make him attractive to and ultimately dispensable to the president. By calling attention to their kinship bond, Douglas reveals how deeply intertwined issues of relatedness between black and white men with the subject of nation formation are for him. Lincoln fails, as the father-mother figure, to live up to Douglas's natal and maternal expectations, and he confirms in Douglas the permanence of his orphaned, homeless social status. As maternal caretaker and sustainer of the central tenants of the Republic, Douglas expects that Lincoln will give rebirth to the slave, not just freeing him in word from slavery, but birthing him into a social and political body that cancels out the social death of slavery. By the time Douglas makes the speech before the Freedmen's Monument and begins years later to work on the Life and Times, he has seen Reconstruction efforts go drastically awry. The Freedmen's Savings Bank fiasco, the stealing of land promised to free persons, and the erection of Jim Crow laws served as indicators of how the nation seemed intent on keeping the slave buried, freed from the coffin of slavery, but socially dead in all other respects. Driven by the need for a collective rebirth of himself and the masses of black people, Douglas would ultimately locate his regenerative capacity in himself. Mother hunger, the sense of being orphaned from the nation, the desire for intimate belonging, and his own personal legacy of sexual violation would fuel and define Douglas's attempts at self and national rebirth. Beginning to realize an interconnection between the rebirth of the nation and personal rebirth, Douglas broke from white abolitionists. In opposition to predominant abolitionist views, Douglas became convinced that there were no necessity for dissolving the union between the northern and southern states. He felt that the vote was power and that the Constitution of the United States not only contained no guarantees in favor of slavery, but, on the contrary, it is, in its letter and spirit, an anti-slavery instrument, demanding the abolition of slavery as a condition of its own existence as the supreme law of the land. Breaking from abolitionists and feeling more freed from his slave past did not mean that Douglas did not have to contend with white male desires, with white male appetites within a culture of consumption. If anything, Douglas understood better how the plantation was a little nation of its own and how the nation operated in many respects like the plantation. Douglas came to a much fuller understanding of the plantation as an incestuous household nation and the larger republic as a social grave and promise of stillborn birth. As I argued earlier in this chapter, 
Throughout history, black men have typically imagined this dynamic of birth and domesticity in the writings in their writings in oppressive female terms. Douglas does this in all his autobiographies through depictions of black men, black women raped, especially his mother and his aunts. But what I want to draw our attention to is how this potentially fecund space was also depicted in his fiction and nonfiction writings as a male womb type space, a regenerative space with capacity to give birth to self, nation, and transform citizenry. The idea that was that if Douglas and black men like himself could give birth to the nation, then they could, on terms of their own, finally exist. It was a homosocial maternity that Douglas conceived that still largely excluded women and black female maternity on practical feminist levels. Still, this gesture toward embodying his hunger for liberty and social acknowledgement points us to entirely new ways of thinking about racial legacy and black masculinity in the 19th century. The Heroic Slave, Douglas's only published fictional work, teems with references to black male fecundity. Published in 1852, this text, in title and storyline, continues what would be Douglas's lifelong project of elevating and glorifying the heroic black male figure. The hero of the story, Madison Washington, is a composite figure based partly on the leader of the revolt aboard the slave ship Creole and President George Washington. The story opens with the narrator having the reader peer into the dark, a dark pregnant with liberty and the legacy of Patrick Henry, who led all the armies of the American colonies through the Great War for Freedom and Independence. We are told that someone is enveloped in darkness and then taken into the searching dark, only to return from the pursuit like a wearied and disheartened mother after a tedious and unsuccessful search for a lost child. This maternal darkness takes on human form a few pages into the story when the darkness Washington steps with, arms like polished iron, a face black but comely, a brow as dark as glossy as the raven's wing. At the beginning of the story, it is Washington who prays in the darkness, who draws into his speaking John Listwell, a northern white man who feels compelled to stop, descend from his horse, and listen. Listwell, whom we might also think of as listens well, we learn, had long desired to sound the mysterious depths of the thoughts and feelings of a slave. As his eye catches hold of Madison in the shadows, he trembles with terror and excitement. Washington's prayer titillates Listwell, who receives his remonstrations as a type of erotic climax. He did not have to wait long. There came another gush from the same full fountain, now bitter and now sweet. Afterward, Washington takes on a glow to his countenance and teems with a hope of freedom that seemed to sweeten the bitter cup of slavery. The fact that Washington ruminates on his wife Susan in the darkness 
and experiences anguish at the thought of having to leave her to escape north further highlights the clandestine erotic sharing that Listwell experiences. His experience his experiences Washington pardon me, he experiences Washington, and through Washington, the passion the enslaved man feels for his wife. This copulating in the mysterious impregnated dark results in a rebirth for Listwell. Washington leaves the pine forest and begins his trek north to freedom. But his white interloper is forever changed. From this hour, I am an abolitionist, he swears to himself. I have seen enough and heard enough. And I shall go to my home in Ohio, resolved to atone for my past indifference to this ill-starred race, by making such exertions as I should be able to do the speedy emancipation of every slave in the land. For all of its representational problems, which I will attend to shortly, this scenario is a striking break from the historical tradition of representing the black female body as the dark, chaotic interior of black experience. It is a unique moment through which we can imagine and begin to think about a politics of black male inter interiority and hunger, moving beyond images of white males ravishing his body in the past and controlling the terms of erotic engagement, Douglas scripts a homoerotic interchange that is mutually beneficial. According to P. Gabriel Foreman, at the time that Douglas pens his story, he is acutely aware that white men are the only reader citizens imbued with legal standing as witnesses. They are his only politically embodied readers, the only ones, that is, with a vote. So as a way of harnessing this political power, Douglas attempts to seduce white male readers. Seduction is the means to constructing a new genealogy of African nativity based in the copulation of the black and white male. The character of Washington combines several strands of American radicalism in one person. He is a reference to the black plantation insurrectionists and to the founding revolutionary fathers of America, specifically George Washington and Patrick Henry. Before the House of Burgesses in 1775, Henry stated in his Liberty or Death speech, three millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty, and in such a country that which we possess, are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. This mandate for national security and fortitude remained unfulfilled in Douglas's mind with the continuance of slavery. Referencing the Henry speech in the Life and Times, he writes, It was a great thing to achieve American independence when we numbered three millions, but it was a greater thing to save this country from dismemberment when it numbered 30 millions. Douglas imagines the heroic male slave as the receptacle of the unrealized national vision Henry espoused. Douglas unites in his womb the opposite and contradictory forces of white fraternity and black maternal legacy. Henry and Washington represent something of Douglas's own whiteness his lifelong problematic relationship to white male paternal figures. Taking their 
seminal visions into himself. While problematic, is for Douglas the only choice if he is to make peace and home of an America plagued by white male immorality. Choosing to be a receptacle acknowledges as well the political reality of black people effeminized and eroticized by whites. Douglas's choice does not ameliorate the stigma and challenges of assuming effeminate posture. Rather, it serves as an example of one black man crafting agency and negotiating complex, fluid notions of gender at the same time that he experiences himself as circumscribed by these ideas. There is a passage in My Bondage and My Freedom where Douglas refers to his mother as resembling an Egyptian pharaoh. He writes, There is in Pritchard's Natural History of Man, the head of a figure. On page 157, the features of which so resemble those of my mother, that I often recur to it with something of the feeling which I suppose others experience when looking upon the pictures of dear departed ones. Some have questioned why Douglas chose to represent his mother with the image of a male pharaoh. This is an important question considering that in the same volume there are images of Hindu women and northern and southern African types that would have been more appropriate and accurate examples of Douglas's mother. If we think, though, of the image as a meshing of Douglas's maternal legacy with the reformation of the U.S. empire, then it makes sense. Douglas recasts his mother as an ancestral figure and a bridge to an ancient African royal lineage. By depicting his mother as Ramses II, not only does he ennoble her, he also establishes by virtue of his bloodline his natural right to claim to the American legacy. This image of a male mother presented in the second and third installments of his autobiography reinforces how emotional Natal needs confounding prevailing nationalist gender politics. Douglas's consistent move to externalize his Natal hunger is instructive. It seems that implicitly he understand he understood that in order not to be consumed by feelings of loss and the sense of emotional and spiritual dislocation that threaten him from without, he would have to actualize his emotional needs, his hungers. In the image of the male mother and his depictions of the fecund heroic male, we are shown how hunger facilitates a deeper grounding in geography and place and enables him to locate himself in history and in the context of national reformation. The heroic figure embodies Douglass's ideas of the Constitution as an essentially anti-slavery document. He conveys his idea of suffrage for black men. Through his heroic male, who is male and female, a combination of women's suffrages, politics, and male slave abolitionist strivings. His hunger is male and female, or perhaps better understood as a cauldron of self and experience that syncretize the two. Hunger is power, or at least the means to accessing power in case within the discourse of nation. David Leverance has noted that Douglas's entrepreneurial notion of manhood meant not freedom so much as dominance 
and the fear of humiliation. As I have argued throughout this chapter, there was no humiliation deeper or more unspeakable than the sexual humiliation suffered by one man at the hands of another. Black men found the feminizing outcomes of such abuse untenable as they translated neither into the preferred dominance over nor access to the entrepreneurial benefits of American capitalism. Yet the idea of Douglas as fecund and the image of the male mother suggests that things were not quite so simple. The image of the male mother is a syncretic figure that adds up, ultimately, to more than the sum of its parts. For example, while the male mother is a new emblem of the nation, it is also a deeply personal metaphor for Douglas, who himself, herself, gives birth to this symbol of the new. The male mother is a coded representation of the ways that male-male relations for Douglas took form from a fluid sense of gender and the consistent goal of whites to make the male slave into a feminine relational object. From the framework of the male mother, we see that Douglas was aware of and acted from a place of gender indeterminacy or fluidity. If we acknowledge this complex facet of his self-awareness and representational politics, then we must also acknowledge a broader understanding of who Douglas was and what he means to us in the present. In the 1960s and 70s, historians and activists sought to recover Douglas from the dark 19th century past as the tradition's very own representative man. At the end of the 20th century, cultural critics and feminist scholars such as McDowell, Charles Clifton, and Foreman began to unpack Douglas's heroic masculinity and suggested a more complicated genealogy or genealogies of Douglas's masculinity and personal legacy. I am advocating that our newer scholarship on Douglas integrate and apply the complex vision we now have of his person and contribution. We should see him simultaneously as a heroic male, a male daughter, a fecund birth-giving male, a male child who was raped, a striving and self-serving patriarch, and an ennobled father of black letters and liberation. If I had to choose a more central motivation fueling these multiple overlapping and intersecting identities, I would choose hunger over and beyond reason, falling back upon the female genealogy of hunger and consumption and Vince in Douglas's maternal relations and in his own embodied feminine sensibilities. Hunger, as I am thinking of it, is logical, reasoning, and strategic. It is also embodied, sensate, and intuitive. Hunger is a meditating, alchemical ground, a point from which Douglas consistently translated what was felt and desired into reasoned action rhetorical performance, and civic belonging, as problematic as this always was. It is out of Douglas's hunger and in response to forces that threatened to consume him that he dreamed, envisioned, and embodied a nation as complex, unresolved, and revisionary as himself. Chapter 4 
Domestic Rituals of Consumption David Walker, a major black abolitionist figure, acknowledged the capacity of slavery to consume black bodies and souls. In Walker's appeal, Walker depicts a plantation reality where black men suffer emasculation. They can neither protect their wives and children, nor can they call themselves escape all the all-encompassing power of whites whose malicious hunger, Walker says, gnaws into our very vitals. Walker describes the consumptive process as fundamentally an attack on male potency and phallic assertion. They, the whites, know well if we are men, he says, and there is a secret monitor in their hearts which tells them we are, they know. I say, if we are men, and see them treating us in the manner they do, that there can be nothing in our hearts but death alone for them. To Walker's thinking, docile and acquiescing black men are more easily consumed. He advocates instead the virile, radical black male. This male, he predicts, will gut and violently overflow the consuming machine. 19th century black male abolitionists tended to agree with Walker. They felt that only male virility and a strong paternal role could save black people from social consumption. I noted in chapter 3 how images of human consumption haunted Frederick Douglass. He described slavery as a living entity that wore robes already crimson with the blood of millions and even now feasting itself greedily upon our own flesh. Everywhere Douglas turned, he saw slavery literally and psychically consuming black people. In the battle between Covey and Douglas, we get Douglas's version of black male might and gladiator-like potency winning out over the white male parasite determined to suck all vitality from the slave. Another black abolitionist, John S. Jacobs, described slave owners and traders as hungry heirs who partook daily of a feast of blood. Jacobs' most painful memories of slavery center upon his emasculated and socially consumed father, he writes. To be a man and not be a man, a father without authority, a husband and no protector, is the darkest of fates. Such was the condition of my father, and such is the condition of every slave throughout the United States. He owns nothing. He can claim nothing. His wife is not his. His children are not his. They can be taken from him and sold any minute, as far away from each other as a human fleshmonger may see fit to carry them. White abolitionist documented incidents of black children literally boiled alive, butchered, and fed to open fires. They debated and deliberated without about whether or not America was becoming a cannibal nation. Black men, though, as Jacob demonstrates, strove to convey the private effects of human consumption. By situating these factual and philosophical considerations in the context of their personal demise, Black men demonstrated how the culture of consumption robbed them of their masculinity, destroyed familial units and ties, 
and portended the literal extinction of the race. Black men had good reason to worry about literal annihilation. Across the nation, whites predicted the extinction of and extermination of the Negro. For example, Midwestern economist George M. Weston predicted in 1857 that when the white artisans and farmers want the room which the African occupies, they will take it not by rude force, but by gentle and gradual and peaceful processes. The Negro will disappear. Others of the religious persuasion felt that an inherited capacity for Christian persuasion guaranteed the survival of the white race, and the lack of it condemned the Negro to extinction. Where whites foresaw and depicted clean and innocent processes of natural selection, black men saw bloodshed and gluttonous consumption. William Wells Brown described a man named Walker, a Negro specula speculator, who was amassing a fortune by trading in the bones, blood, and nerves of God's children. Solomon Northrop, a free black man illegally captured and sold into slavery, linked the gastronomical enjoyments of whites in their entitlement to processes of consumption that involve starving, raping, and emasculating slaves. In emphasizing black male virility and paternity, black men sought to counter this national death wish toward the Negro, which they experienced as intrinsically tied to their social consumption. In this chapter, I want to complicate this idea of black male paternalism and radical insurgence as a final solution to social consumption because what such an assertion tended to imply was that only radical paternal type men could overcome or escape consumption. Along with radical black masculinity, black men emphasized traditional structures of the black family, reproduction, gender, and sexuality. As an example, the natural counterpart to the virile insurgent black father was the black mother, whom most conceived of as the mistress to and caretaker of black civilization. In response to slavery's habit of consuming black people in body and soul, David Walker advocates the restoration of black female maternity and reproductive power. The regeneration and sustenance of the race resides in mothers who bore the pains of death to give birth to us, and within wives who we love as we do ourselves. While this framing of the black male's social consumption was a useful uplift strategy, it limited then, and still does today, what we can know about the complex culture of consumption and the myriad ways black men resisted and grappled with the reality of their social consumption. The textual focus of this chapter is Harriet Jacobs' slave narrative, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, written by herself. The narrative offers many examples of literal, psychic, and erotic consumption. From slaves whose flesh is literally cooked, to others fed alive to machines, to still others starved into sexual submission and erotically consumed by masters, Jacob depicts a shocking and haunting tableau of consumption and violence.
like her male contemporaries, Jacobs conceives of institutionalized consumption as a process that erodes familial ties, makes black men into heathens and brutes, violates black female chastity, and is antithetical to the black uplift project. For her, the natural antidote to the culture of consumption she graphically depicts is black male virility, intelligence, and uplift spirit. In the narrative, men such as John Jacobs, her brother, Peter, a man who helps her escape, and her embattled father fulfill this role. She frequently refers to these men as intelligent, enterprising, and noble-hearted. These men form a natural complement to the black maternal politics informing the narrative. It does not matter that she never successfully couples with a black man, that her father's loss of his wife contributes to his death, or that men must suffer torture and death to secure only a few fleeting moments with wives and children. Such tragic losses underscore how slavery isolates loved ones from one another and makes individuals vulnerable through the disruption of male-female conjugal unions and familial support systems to processes of social consumption. Jacobs structures her uplift politics around stereotypic 19th century dyads of thought and experience, the most central dyad being the black maternal figure and the insurgent or suffering patriarch. On one hand, this central male-female pairing its and its outgrowths, male virility, sacrificing maternity, safety familial union, chastity racial continuity, enabled a politics of black survival. And on the other hand, this rigid male-slash-female dynamic prevented access to deeper realities of black male experience, to black erotic life, and to a fuller range of black male survival strategies within a culture of consumption. Someone like Luke, a slave Jacobs depicts as sexually brutalized and socially consumed, has nothing, in Jacobs' presentation of him, to do with racial uplift, with an ennobled 19th century black masculinity, or with black female sexual politics under slavery. Luke does not fit into the traditional male-slash-female dynamic because he does not affect outright resistance. He is subject to his master's homoerotic desires, he registers as sexually ambiguous, and he undergoes a sustained and ritualized process of social consumption. According to the prevailing 19th century discourse of manhood, Luke is not a man. And if we go along with Jacob's inter in interpretation of his life and circumstances of consumption, we can easily write him off as a casualty of white hunger and appetite. In making Luke one of the focal figures in this chapter, I intend to argue the opposite of Jacob's presumptions. I feel that Luke is a different type of representative black man who, because he does not fit neatly into prevailing gender and sexual dynamics, offers a non-conforming and complicated understanding of black male sensibility that we do not get from those black men who have come to us through history as representative race men rather than presuming that he is simply an example of emasculation and white parasitism, I ask exactly how Luke qualifies as a man and in what ways his gender and sexual variance necessitate a more complicated understanding of black masculinity 
in the 19th century. Furthermore, going against the 19th century logic of the black paternal and maternal pairing, I draw numerous parallels between the lives of Luke and Jacobs. Jacobs also experienced homoerotic abuse at the hands of her mistress and had experiences that did not conform to norms of gender and sex. When we look at Jacob and Luke relationally, we get a different picture of black maternity and crucial dimensions of black female sexuality that we have tended to overlook or misrecognize come into focus. In the conclusion of the chapter, I theorize on the largely under-theorized topics of gender and sexual variance in the context of slavery. Drawing mostly upon black feminine scholarship, which has undertaken to correct narratives of black people as lacking gender and sexual identities under slavery, I challenge us to rethink the theoretical and material potential of transgenderism, gender variance, and sexual fluidity in terms of black cultural production. These fluid categories of sex and gender, I argue, are crucial to formulating a deeper, more complicated understanding of black interior life and black political praxis generated in the 19th century. And that is where we will end the first audio segment. Uh, so we will pick up their second audio segment. We're almost at the subheading, uh, Deciphering Black Male Rape. Uh, it's almost where we are uh, picking up. In fact, I think that's where we're supposed to pick up for the second uh, segment. I'll finish that last chapter because I think that is where we're supposed to pick up for the second audio segment. Um, so the last paragraph. Uh, furthermore, going against the 19th century logic of the black paternal and maternal pairing, I draw numerous parallels between the lives of Luke and Jacobs. Jacobs also experienced homoerotic abuse at the hands of her mistress and had experiences that did not conform to norms of gender and sex. When we look at Jacobs and Luke relationally, we get a different picture of black maternity and crucial dimensions of black female sexuality that we have tended to overlook or misrecognize come into focus. In the conclusion of this chapter, I theorize on the largely under-theorized topics of gender and sexual variance in the context of slavery, drawing mostly on black feminist scholarship, which is undertaken. I don't look like we were at a different spot. I thought we ended someplace that we didn't. My apologies. Um, so we are picking up. We'll be right there. I thought we just missed that paragraph. But deciphering black male rape, that's what we're picking up at for the second audio segment. If you have commentary that you would like to share on Mr. Woodard's Delectable Negro, the number to dial is 641-715-3640, and the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. That number again, 641 715 The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. If you do not want to use your phone to dial in, you can use the free VOPE line. That number, or excuse me, the link 
It's uh, listed at Black Talk Radio Network. If you need the link, it is tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. That is the number one. Address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. When you click that link, Look on the left of the page. You'll see the link for the free vote line. Click it. It will open a small window on your screen. The top line is a drop down menu. Click, uh, click the number that I just gave out, which again is 641-715-3640. The next line, it will ask for the code. That code again is 564-943-943. Final line, it will ask for a name. You can put in your real name. You can click random keys. You can use a nickname, whatever you're, whatever you're comfortable with. Once you get all that information entered, click the green button at the bottom. It will connect you to the live program. It is the same procedure. If you would like to participate, you'll see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six. You'll hear an audio prompt to press the number one and we'll get you on the line. Uh, we are... A little bit more than halfway through the book, uh, closing in on the conclusion. So, folks, I want to be thinking of major themes, what you've learned, uh, just what we have discussed thus far. You can have that in mind and and share as we go. Uh, Folks who dialed in who have a hand up, uh, line should be open. Please do not wait to the last minute. If you have commentary you would like to share, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Got a little late start. Um, I was listening to the audio, but I wasn't in front of the text. Um, but from what I heard, um, he, Frederick Douglass, uh, sounded, um, quote unquote, gay. Um, and I don't know if I'm in error. Uh, maybe someone else can uh, help me out with that if I was hearing that correctly. Um, I did have one thing that stood out, and then I had uh, one question about uh, the text. I'll start with what stood out, and that is on page 130. And it reads, we'll start with one, it's two things, I'll start with 128. Um, when the white artisans and farmers want the room which the African occupies, they will take it not by rude force, but by gentle and gradual and peaceful processes. Um, that really stood out. Um, I think that um, is still the uh, preferred method today. Um, brings to mind what Neely Fuller says, um, deceit and or brute force. And uh, the next thing that stood out is on page 130, and um, which was very short, which says, 
And if we go along with Jacob's interpretation of his life and circumstances of consumption, we can easily write him off as a casualty of white hunger and appetite. And um, that stood out to me because um, when it said write him off, um, it puts me in the uh, mind frame of, Slavery was sanctioned by the state, which was laws, uh, words on paper. Um, and when I was uh, sentenced, um, everything was in writing. And um, it, it, it seems as though uh, black people are still being wrote off today. Another question that I have is on one twenty eight. One twenty-two, <clears throat> and uh, it reads: A northern white man who feels compelled to stop descends from his horse and listen, listen well, list well, whom we might also think of listens well. We long, we learn, had long desired to sound the mysterious depths of thoughts and feelings of a slave. As his eye, as as his eye catches hold of Madison in the shadows, he trembles with terror and excitement. Washington prayer titillates Liswell, who receives his remonstrations as a type of erotic climax. He did not have to wait long. There came another gush from the same full fountain, now bitter and now sweet. Um, afterward, Washington takes on a glow to his to his countenance and teams with the hope of freedom that seemed to sweeten sweeten the bitter cup of slavery. Now, <clears throat> man, that boggled my mind. Uh, when I first heard it, and that's why I um, made a note of it. And my question is, is this part of the text, is this the, what Fred, Frederick Douglass was uh, writing? Was that in his story? And the second question, is that describing a anti-sexual act? And um, thank you. I'm in my line. Uh, I guess to the first part of the question in terms of is this something that uh, Frederick Douglass uh, wrote, uh, he says this is from the heroic slave. Now, I haven't read that, but he says this is from the heroic slave, the portions that he has uh, in uh, in quotes here. He did not have to wait long. There came another gush, but, but all that's in quotes. So um, I can't imagine someone lying uh like that's a pretty big lie and then to have other people dr curry and other folks uh read it and not say hey wait a minute you know uh he didn't write that or you're falsely uh attributing quotes like i would think so this book has been out for three years now so i would think someone would have seen uh, if he was making that up uh at least at this point i don't have any reason to think that 
uh, Frederick Douglass did not write this in the heroic slave. If somebody wants to, somebody can get a hand. Uh, I'll try myself to see if I can get a hand on the heroic slave and, and verify that that is in fact there. Lots of metaphors. So that would be another one open to interpretation uh, in terms of what you think about what was written. That would be my response to that question. Uh, other folks that are with us on the line that we have not heard from, uh, if you have your own commentary, uh, if you want to include your uh, responses to uh, Robin Wisconsin, his questions as well, that's fine also. But thank you, Rob. Uh, other folks who have commentary, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, thank you, Gus. Uh, greetings to you, to Rob, and the other callers and listeners. Um, what I got from the text in the beginning, um, in my first reading of it, was not necessarily that Frederick Douglass was homosexual, but that he's he was being homosexualized. And I think because Mr. Woodard is a gay male, he, in some parts of this writing, is homosexualizing um, Frederick Douglass because the way that the system was functioning back then, there was no room for him to have any other types of relations besides those that white people allowed him to have. So it may not have been necessarily that he was homosexual, but the fact that that was the only form of, or option for him in order to gain any sort of sexual pleasure um, it's no different than being in prison and then you're not necessarily a gay male, but because you're trapped in jail with men, with nothing but men for 10 years, you might give in to just, a, excuse me, to give in to those overt male sexual urges that express themselves in the form of a homosexual tryst or something of that, and even raping another black male. But, um, and it's because of the context of what your life situation is. And I just think because Mr. Woody was a gay male that, um, he used maybe some of these, some of this information regarding um, the emasculation of Frederick Douglass to further effeminize him, in my opinion. Um, to, on page 124, uh, he writes something interesting. He says, yet the idea of Douglass as fecund and the image of, another, of, a, of the male mother suggests that things were not quite so simple. The image of the male mother is a syncretic figure that adds up ultimately to more than the sum of its parts. For example, while the male mother is a new emblem of the nation, it is also a deeply personal metaphor for Douglas, who him slash herself gives birth to this symbol of the new. The male mother is a coded representation of the ways that male-male relations for Douglas took form from a fluid sense of gender and the consistent goal whites make excuse me, of whites to make the male slave into an effeminate relational object. And this is this speaks to what I was talking about as far as um the the author or his editors homosexualizing Frederick Douglass. Because um when he says while the male mother is a new emblem of the nation, it is also a deeply personal metaphor for Douglas. Now how how does he know that? He's not Douglas. He's implying that. Who him herself gives birth to this symbol of the new. So he's now effeminizing Doug, Frederick Douglass by calling, saying him herself. And what is the new that he's giving birth to? It's the fact that he's being brutalized and raped and terrorized by white people, and they're turning him into the new. It's not something that he holistically embraced. It's something that he was forced to do. And 
Then he says the male mother is a coded representation of the ways that male-male relations for Douglas took, took form from a fluid sense of gender and the consistent goal of lights to make the, make the male slave into an effeminate relational object. So how does he know that Cedric Douglas had a fluid sense of gender? He's, again, he's, he's propagating something that I've never, I'm not uh, familiar with whatsoever. And what, he, what he's accurate with is the consistent goal of whites, i.e. the white male, to make the male slave into an effeminate relational object. So he's being homosexualized by white people. And in parts of this text, I believe he's being homosexualized by the author. A little bit further down, on page 125, he says, I'm advocating that our new, newer scholarship on Douglas integrate and apply the complex vision we now have of his person and contribution. We should see him as simultaneously a heroic male, a male daughter, a fecund, uh, birth-giving male, a male child who was raped, a striving and self-serving patriarch, and an ennobled father of black letters and liberation. If I had to choose a more central motivation fueling these simple, I'm assuming these multiple overlapping and intersecting identities, I would choose hunger over and beyond reason, falling back upon the female genealogy of hunger and consumption evinced in Douglas's material relations and in his own embodied feminine sensibilities. Hunger, as I'm thinking of it, is a logical reasoning and strategic. It is also embodied, sensate, and intuitive. Hunger is a mediating alchemical ground, a point from which Douglas consistently translated what was felt and desired into reasoned action, rhetorical performance, and civic belonging, as problematic as this always was. It is out of Douglas's hunger and in response to forces that threaten to consume him that he dreamed, envisioned, and embodied a nation as a complex, unresolved and revisionary as himself and revisionary as himself. And um, again, he's making a suggestion to the reader that we should see him as a male daughter who made him a male daughter, the white guy who enslaved him and, and, and was raping him ad infinitum. Um, what is he giving birth to? Because he says he's a birth giving male. Men don't give birth <laughs> at all. The only thing that he could give birth to is the revolutionary ideas and concepts that will give birth to other black males who want to follow in his footsteps and replace white supremacy with justice. Outside of that context, men don't give birth. So that is another form of homosexualizing of uh, the ancestor Frederick Douglass. Um, and then he wrote, let me see. And he said, if I had to choose a more central motivation fueling these multiple overlapping and intersecting identities, I would choose hunger over and beyond reason. I think, and I, I, based on what he's writing, I go the opposite. He's reasoning that since he's in a situation where he's being forced to be hungry and basically to consume himself in certain aspects, and also because he's forced to allow himself to be consumed by his enemy, that he is making reasoned decisions based on the circumstances in which he finds himself, not the other way around. That is um, my reason for why I think he was potentially homosexual, but he, he has been, and in, in certain aspects, being homosexualized in the text. On 128, the author writes, to be a man and not to be a man, a father without authority, a husband and no protector, is the darkest of fates. Such was the condition of my father, and such is the condition of every slave throughout the United States. He owns nothing. He can claim nothing. His wife is not his. His children are not his. They can be taken from him and sold any minute, as far away from each other as the human fleshmonger may see fit to carry them. I just find that to be one of the most important paragraphs in the whole text, just to put the con context of the black experience in this country, especially the black male right now, in its proper context. Because we're, we're slaves right now, 
and everything that he described as far as the lack of agency that black men had in that time is the same lack of agency we have now. So I think that's something for us to really ponder upon um, in order to facilitate us thinking about um, how we're going to go about replacing this, this uh, system with a system of justice immediately. Lastly, I just wanted to touch on uh, page 130, and it goes into 131. The author writes, in making Luke one of the focal figures of this chapter, chapter, I intend to argue the opposite of Jacob's presumptions. I feel that Luke is a different type of representative black man who, because he does not fit neatly into prevailing gender and sexual dynamics, offers a non-conforming and complicated understanding of black male sensibility that we do not get from those black men who have come to us through history as representative race men. Rather than presuming that he is simply an example of emasculation and white parasitism, I ask exactly how Luke qualifies as a man and in what ways his gender and sexual variants necessitate a more complicated understanding of black masculinity in the 19th century. Furthermore, going against the 19th century logic of the black paternal and maternal pairing, I draw numerous parallels between the lives of Luke and Jacobs. Jacobs also experienced homoerotic abuse at the hands of her mistress and had experiences that did not conform to the norms of gender and sex. And um, again, I think he's presenting um, Luke, which I think is, is accurate in the sense that um, just because he might have been homosexual or homosexualized to the point of accepting his fate and maybe at some point embracing it, I'm not him, I don't know. Um, but maybe but through that experience, again, he also had to deal with the situation that was before him and make adjustments to his lifestyle in order to survive and possibly probably not commit suicide by having himself being terrorized sexually on a regular basis. So just because he was homosexualized and being raped doesn't mean that he didn't want to fight the system in that super oppressed, um, emasculated state. So I agree with him on that particular point. And, um, because in the 19th century, black masculinity was forced to be fluid. Um, that, so that is something for us to look into, whereas he's giving the impression that black males have, have always had this gender fluidity, which I know historically did not exist until we came into contact with whites and Arabs. So um, again, uh, thanks for taking my call, and I'll meet my line and give someone a chance to speak, but I just think there's a lot of propagation of anti-sexual um, cultural and behavior and perspective, and I think that's just based on the fact that the author himself is a homosexual, and I think that's also part of the reason this book has gotten such praise from um, the LGBTQ community. Thank you, and I'll meet my line. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. I felt the exact same way when I was catching up on the reading and I read the Frederick Douglass parts of the text. Um, I felt that the author was overreaching and trying really, really hard to make connections that weren't necessarily there, which happens a lot in the institution and in so-called academia and stuff like that. They're always wanting to populate or postulate some type of theory. So sometimes like things should be simple and clear. And I was like, how is he even coming up with this? And um, like, and there was something else that like I noticed that there's like a theme in the book to be I thought the book would be a little bit different than how it's coming off now after the Frederick Douglass part. I thought this would have a lot more stories of how black men were um, consumed and uh, homosexualized in slavery in many different situations all over the Americas and even beyond, you know, um, instead of taking one person and then like look through the things that they've written 
for the things that they've said to try to pick out particular passages or words that you can kind of like twist. And, um, and the, another reason I think that the whole gay community or queer theory community um, would accept this book is because it, it does not mention it like very, very little white females roles in it. And I thought this book would have it because even though it's the white male who would be raping the black male, um, there has to be stories and like accounts of what white females were doing to black men in that power dynamic that would also further emasculate them just because you have sex with a woman. But if you didn't want to, it doesn't mean that you walk away feeling more manly. So like that's not mentioned in here at all. The author also goes to a great extent to focus on white males. I started just highlighting uh, every time just white male, white male, white male. It's never white people, white females. It's always just white male, white male, white male. Another thing that was a little bit off-putting in the text was this notion that a male, if he is not a male, is a female. And I think that that's dangerous. Women, females are not males who lack penises. That's like a Freudian concept, and it's incorrect. Two distinct sexes or genders who are different. So an emasculated male is not a female, just like uh, an empowered or, you know, a woman who, like like Harriet Tubman, would not be a masculine female, even though she was saying that. Like at, when she asked, ain't I a woman? I'm still, a, like, they're different. And I felt like this author should have done that. There's, But there's so much, like becoming a daughter, biological females, the role of the female, the womb. I also was a little frustrated in the text, too, when he says, because men don't give birth the way that women give birth, but men participate in creation. So the distinct, the act of giving birth is different, but men participate in creating. So if a man is so-called birthing a nation, he's really just co-creating a nation or assisting. That whole umbrella of now Frederick Douglass is more feminine because he wanted to birth so-called this nation. I was like, but then if that's the case, then we would have to put that on white men who created the U.S. Um, 13 colonies and the whole system of racism and white supremacy as feminine because they created something. And I don't think that that's like, I think that does, that does a large injustice to males, black men specifically too, because black men have always been very creative. Like to be creative is not to be feminine. I disagree with that. To be creative is to be human. And however you do it and the, the ways that it looks are nuanced and different for the so-called sexes and genders. But I was like, what? That doesn't make any sense. So I was very frustrated with that. Um, there was a couple other parts in the text. Um, yeah, but some people have already like read them. Um, so I'm not going to, but there was a couple parts <clears throat> on page, excuse me, 122. And I don't think that the author wrote this. This might be a quote from someone else. Um, but seduction is the means to construct, oh, this is at the bottom of page 122. Seduction is the means to constructing a new genealogy of American nativity based in the copulation of black and white male. And I was like, how? I'm not even sure, you know, wh what does he mean by genealogy of American nativity? Like sometimes some of these things are written and they're just, um, you can tell that they're, they're, I feel like it's intentionally um, decisive in its confusion. 
Like, what is it that's being said? What are you trying to say? And it should be clear to understand. It shouldn't be so convoluted. Um, and that's that's pretty much what I wanted to say because that's coming. That's starting to be my theme. That I think the book is trying to become what, like not that the book itself is trying to, but maybe the author was trying to locate himself within in his own sexuality and find justification for it in other very prominent black males who have written or spoken things and try to place that in some type of historical context. And a lot of times that's what people do. You know, you write a book so it can become part of the literary canon. So then when other people conduct research, they can always refer back to this book and all the other books that will come. And now this becomes something that would be considered somewhat true. And I think this book is almost like that. I really thought it would be different, but that part on Frederick Douglass, I was just like, there's really no validation for that. That's, that just seems the superfluous nature of the language at the time, that the way that people were speaking. I do understand when he did talk about Abraham's, um, you know, lips and stuff like that. Um, but I don't think that makes him female or a daughter or just because he envisioned a nation where he would be equal that made him feminine. They're separate. So thank you. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings to the other calls, listeners. I agree with the last two calls. I think that uh, a lot of the author's personal life is reflected in uh, some of these, uh, uh, I guess, uh, positions that he take on uh, Frederick Douglass's life and what was going on in his head at the time. But when you take someone that had uh, been through it, what he had been through and to the point to where singing underneath the uh, <clears throat> window of the uh, slave mistress and she throwing him pieces of bread or food, he thought that was kindness, you know, to the point that almost anything that anyone or a white person did could be looked upon as some, you know, way larger than what it really was at the time. And I don't think that the author is uh, really painting an accurate picture. But to the book, I'm glad that uh, Frederick Douglass on page uh, 118 said that he was in a phase in his life when he believed in the proximity to black nobility and empathy could change whites. He would realize, though, after finding out about Lincoln's support of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, that Northern whites had used him and the enslaved persons' cause to further their nationalist and other political aims. And I just wanted to reiterate on that because uh, these abolitionists or so-called abolitionists was not interested in the uh, welfare of the enslaved African. And I noticed that the author used the word Emble a lot over five times, uh, four or five times in this particular reading. And then the so called emblem of the uh, anti uh, slavery, the uh, abolitionists, was a slave kneeled down, you know, mangled with chains 
and uh, with the wording, am I a man? You know, something to that effect. But <clears throat> the Freeman Saving Bank fiasco on page 120, a little bit about that is, uh, I guess, black people after slavery, after emancipation, was getting together, getting their coins together and created banks. I think as many as maybe 37 banks have been created. And then the white people, of course, come along and come up with the idea of making a confederation or bringing them all in together under the terms of maybe uh, uh, protecting them. So uh, they took all these banks and then misma mismanaged the funds. As a footnote on page, on uh, in the back of the book, uh, 102, it explains a little bit uh, more about it. Uh, looks as though uh, Frederick Douglass himself, uh, well, they appointed him as president of this so-called uh, uh, Federation of Banks after they had uh, stolen all the money. And the footnote was saying, uh, uh, sadness, you know, in a festival type manner, they squandered all the funds hard work and savings of slaves and uh, just had a ball on that. Um, and then one last thing, um, I believe that was in heroic uh, slave. I kind of discounted all this uh, information that uh, he come up with about uh, a male mother and uh, uh, union between white males and black males. But I like the part uh, when they got on David, David Walker on uh, the beginning of chapter four. He said, Walker describes the con consumptive process as fundamentally an attack on male potency and phallic assertion that they, the whites, know well if we are men he says, and there is a secret monitor in their hearts which tell them we are. They know, I said, I say, if we are men and see them treating us in this manner, they do, then there can be nothing in our hearts but death alone for them. To Walker's thinking, docile and acquiescing black men are more easily consumed he advocated instead a vital, radical black male. This male, he predicts, will glut and violently overflow the consuming machine. And so I believe that uh, a vital fight against the system of white supremacy is what's needed and that I can see why uh, the system would allow something like this to uh, be published to try to tarnish the image of one of uh, the nation and, and black icons and, and black American history. I'll mute my line. Thanks, God. Appreciate that. Uh, if other folks that are listening in, if you have comments you would like to share, please do not wait till the last minute. Go ahead and get a hand up. Uh, we have 
20 minutes or so uh, before we get to the second audio segment. Uh, if you have other thoughts folks want to share. Uh, before I get to some of uh, uh, my thoughts on the book this week, I think I mentioned way back when we first got started with this text that uh, it's in so many different books that during castrations where they uh, lynching, excuse me, where they mutilated uh, black bodies and they would uh, cut away body parts. And I said that I had read uh, about a lynching uh, where they cut away some of the body parts and, and you had some cannibalism and auto cannibalism happening. One of the listeners, uh, I, I think I just read a little bit from memory. Uh, what, one of the times that I read this and they said, oh, that's in the warmth of other sons. And lo and behold, it is. So they're talking about the lynching of Claude Neal. This is a uh, infamous case that happened down uh, in Florida in the 1930s. So uh, the lovely Isabel Wilkerson, she writes, well before the appointed hour, several thousand people had gathered at the lynching site. The crowd grew so large and unruly, people having been given sufficient forewarning to come in from other states that the committee of six, fearing a riot, took Neil to the woods by the Chipola River to wait out the crowds and torture him before the execution. There, his captors took knives and castrated him in the woods. Then they made him eat the severed body parts and say he liked it, a witness said. One man threw up at the site, wrote the historian James R. McGovern. I'll stop there again. This is in uh, Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Sons, which we also read uh, on the book club way, 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 way back, uh, 2000. 13 uh, it's in the chapter uh, George Swanson Starling and I think this is not the only time that I've read they call this the fancy word is auto cannibalism uh, in this instance uh, this victim uh, black male being forced to eat his own genitalia right in line with uh, delectable Negro all right so back to uh, this text uh, some of the things that stood out that I highlighted for this week um, the portion, uh, I think right at the beginning of what we picked up at this week, this is still in, uh, chapter three, where they're talking about Douglas's admiration of Lincoln. I think this is right where we ended at last week. And then he picks up with that this week, uh, where he says, uh, it is something of the slave in Douglas, the one who has had to constantly battle for freedom and a place to rest, who sees finally in Lincoln, the maternal bosom an emblem of a final resting place. He relates to Lincoln as a romanticizing male child, a male to female romantic object. Uh, and, and again, now he's already, this is the paragraph after he's already, uh, got in quotes now where Douglas is talking about the president's, uh, lips and his face and, you know, he just, he looks like just such a great guy. And, uh, he's, you know, going into great detail, uh, talking, uh, about his eyes and the tenderness of motherhood and his eyes and his mouth and other features had the highest perfection of genuine manhood. This is all in quotes, um, reading those statements and then reading his assessment, just in that paragraph about how he views Lincoln in the context of being enslaved, terrorized, perhaps uh, raped or subjected to some form of uh, homosexual uh, violence uh, while he was enslaved. It makes total sense in that vein uh, to view Lincoln or any white person, male or female, 
in that manner and oh my gosh i hope that i can connect with this white person and they will you know they will be able to keep me safe and look out for me uh particularly when he gives the the same anecdote a little bit further down it's i'm, I'm going a little bit out of order but it, it it's just it reminds me of the same thing when he talks about being oh it's right there it's right in order i was gonna say yeah when he talks about this incident that happened on the train with Edward Marshall, where he says Marshall, uh, where I guess they, they came like, Oh, this Negro, you know, Frederick, I don't care what your name is. Frederick, get off the train. So they go to throw him off the train. And he says, the captain orders Douglas to be physically removed from the dining room. Marshall rebuffs the steward with eyes full of fire. Douglas sees a lightning flash in the, and imagines this saving individual as a deity of the sky with golden hair and fiery eyes whose voice resounded like a clap of summer thunder in this instance douglas cast himself in the more effeminate role describing marshall as chivalrous gallant and possessed of generous and manly qualities uh in my view it's the same thing uh and i think this is the one where uh, where they, they tie in the fact that Marshall, I guess, just visited his black mammy. So maybe he was feeling especially uh, connected and sympathetic to Negroes uh, on that particular day to stick up for Douglas. But I just, in that environment, whether we're talking 19th century or right now, it's very, very easy uh, for any black person when you, your very life can be taken at any moment Woo, if there is a white person who is willing to stick up for me and will keep me safe, hey, I'm going to stick. This will be the coolest white person ever. I think many, many uh, victims of racism end up functioning in that manner. And, I, and in my view, I think the most accurate way of reading that is not that, oh, you know, maybe he was transgender or had, you know, fluidity with regards to his sexual identification. It is that is the system of white supremacy. Uh, and that is what it is designed to do to put us in that inferior, uh, emasculinized state uh, where we are constantly looking for the man the woman to keep us safe and that would be white man white woman next um where and it just it comes up again i think all of these responses where uh later on uh where he quotes douglas where he says slaves were uh Mr. Freeland, Mr. Freeland belongs to the class of slaveholder, admired and affectionately thought of by slaves. Slaves were not, Douglas notes, insensible to the whole souled qualities of a generous, dashing slaveholder who was fearless of consequences, and they preferred a master of this bold and daring kind, even with the risk of being shot down for impudence following the, and this is no longer quotes. This is the author, Mr. Woodard and the editors following this logic of aristocratic refinement. One can understand how Douglas found in Lincoln, the perfect embodiment of the ennobled father figure. I think there's that word again, uh, just again, I, where I guess I would present maybe three quick thoughts on this. Number one, I think we talked before, um, Douglas writing, speaking to a lot of white audiences, racist audiences, there could be some level of I think whites would like to hear this sort of thing. I'll write that. I think that could be a possibility. I think too, repeating the same thing that I said before the system of white supremacy, you're going to have a variety of these types of responses uh, where you have victims of racism, where whether I eat, whether I live, whether I get to keep my child is dependent upon how this individual white person, male or female feels about me. Uh, it can it can and does is designed to inspire all of these types of thoughts, whether it's overwhelming awe, uh, attraction, fear, 
all at the same time just because of the power that they wield uh, over our lives. Again, I just in my view, I think it just comes down to how do you read all this? Is this a response to racism, white supremacy or does this speak more about, you know, our uh, fluid understanding of gender, gender and sexual identity? Um, Let's see. The next portion where uh, and where he says that that's why I included that where later on this is on at the bottom of 122 uh, where he says uh, Douglas scripts a homoerotic interchange that is mutually beneficial according to P. Gabriel Foreman at the time that Douglas pens this story he is acutely aware that white men are the only reader citizens imbued with legal standing as witnesses they are his only political politically embodied readers the only ones that is with a vote so as a way of harnessing this political power douglas attempts to seduce white male readers now that last sentence is in quotes that's from uh, this foreman person i don't know if this is a white person or non-white person uh, he's talking about uh, the fiction work the heroic slave that douglas wrote i did find a copy online i guess if you want to print it out or read it online the heroic slave it is available uh, and if what i saw online is accurate the the portions that are quoted in this text uh that uh, i think robin wisconsin asked about that's in the text online that is reportedly uh written the version that was written by frederick Douglass. so it looks like he did uh write say the things that uh, are attributed to him in this portion of the text this week uh just my view again number one i think it's worth worth considering that Douglas could have been, as they say, wearing the mask, uh, smart enough to figure out this is the sort of thing that white people would want to consume. And apparently a number of black people have figured out something in that manner that, hey, white people are much more accepting of an effeminate black person. However, that can be packaged. That might be something that I can use to my advantage. Uh, and again, I think he states repeatedly throughout the text that that is one of the goals is to effeminize black males. So I think some black people, uh, period, but to effeminize black males. So I think sometimes it's just looking, is this what we're looking at the result of what white people have done and the goal that they hope to achieve? Is this something where victims of racism, uh, as they say, are wearing the mask? We know what needs to be done in terms of just trying to keep ourselves as safe as we can. So if that means I'll speak in a high pitched voice, reminding me a little Richard or whatever I need to do to to get these white people to maybe not terrorize me quite so much. Uh, I think that's something to think about as well. Maybe Mr. Woodard is correct and we just haven't uh, haven't understood things correctly. Folks can process that way as well. Uh, continuing. Let's see anything else I want to make sure I get in. I do think the uh, he calls it mother hunger. I think we talked about that last week. I do think that is uh, significant. There was just a report uh, at NPR this week where they were talking about efforts of enslaved black people uh, where they were taking out ads in the paper and just going through really, really like just extraordinary efforts to find lost black people uh, that family uh, and those connections uh, with people that we cared about meant so much that they just went through extraordinary efforts, walking miles and miles and miles at a time where you didn't have sidewalks and shoes even readily uh, available in roads and what have you to find other black people. So I do think that that 
uh, mother hunger is real. Uh, I just, in my opinion, some of the things that you all have already touched on, I agree with where I think that gets distorted and, and uh, misrepresented as some sort of his mother hunger being displaced to his uh, homoerotic feelings for other white men in positions of power to me, that just does not seem reasonable to me. That seems like a lot of the 21st century, uh, white supremacy ideology where they're really pushing all of this, uh, sexual confusion. Uh, and particularly when it's time to talk about racism. Now we really want to make sure that we, uh, mandatorily include that, uh, in all dialogue to just further confound our understanding of racism, uh, white supremacy could be the case here. I could be an error. Uh, let's see the point. I think Roz already touched on where, uh, Woodard and the editors where they say, uh, we should see Douglas as a heroic male, uh, a male daughter, a uh, birth giving male. Some of these, I don't know if they're speaking uh, metaphorically, if they're speaking in a literal sense. To my mind, it is not possible for males biologically to give birth. Now, if we're talking about a metaphor of some uh, of some sort, then that would be uh, on the author in terms of what you think he is, quote unquote, giving birth to. I think Ross said, is it is it revolutionary ideas about black liberation or what exactly are we talking about i think a lot of this as you all have stated just could be us uh looking to run with our agenda and we'll find ways of attributing these ways of thinking to douglas even though this is just our current racist ideology of of what we're trying to promote in ways we're trying to confuse people to pick up our uh concepts uh about all this deviant sexual behavior um Let's see. I thought I think it was Mr. Demery Ford. I thought that was really important where uh, he touched on uh, Frederick Douglass being duped by some of these whites uh, up north where they just wanted to control and manipulate him. I thought that was really uh, important. Glad that we got that uh, emphasized. I also thought it was significant. He mentioned the uh, footnote where they were talking about the Freedmen's Bank. Uh, and I think that footnote included that they put, I think, as Mr. Demery Ford said, they put Frederick Douglass in charge at the end after the whites had already stolen and looted all this money they put Frederick Douglass at the, uh, in charge at the end and be like, Oh man, no good. Fred ran off with all the money. You can't trust niggas at all. See, we told them that's literally in the footnote. I'm just paraphrasing, but that is, that's exactly what they say in the footnote at the end that they put him there just to take all of the blame. So he'd be the one to get in trouble. They've been doing the racial showcasing successfully for a long, long time. Uh, final thing I'll get in, then we can check, see if, uh, folks have anything else that they, uh, would like to share. Uh, let's see. I was going to say something about uh, the things that came up in the second. I guess the the patriarch is that came up as well. I, I reject that now. Uh, we just had that conference with uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Matua. She was Athena Matua. She was on the program in December 2016, and she posited that. I think they ended right at, uh, towards the end, saying that Frederick Douglass uh, was a quote unquote patriarch i emphatically reject that then i reject that now uh you cannot be a victim of white supremacy and a patriarch a matriarch a member of the syndicate or anything else if you are a victim of white supremacy that is your title and you are not in charge nor do you have the power to do anything other than maybe get on some other victims nerves and even that white people can probably stop that in about five seconds if they really want to i'll stop there uh, other folks have anything that they would like to share comments they'd like to make before we get to the second audio segment. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. I uh, thank you. Uh, thank for the opportunity to speak again. Um, you made some salient points and I have to say big up to D- Mr. Demi for, um, 
uh, he just he just said some incredible things. Um, and what was interesting about what Mr. Demery said was um, when he was discussing uh, the uh, oh my goodness about the propagation of homosexuality amongst uh, amongst the slaves. And from my studies, what I've determined is that is the reason that they homosexually rape black black males. Um, and that's why they did it to all the other people who they conquered is because if you homosexualize the your enemy, then in the white mind, I think it takes away the threat of masculine violence. So in other words, if you have men who are able to function as men in the true capacity in which nature created men to act, they feel more threatened by that in regards to those men rising up against them. Whereas if they effeminize them, emasculate and rape and homosexualize them, they feel that they've effeminized the masculine out of them. So there's less of a physical threat of violence from that homosexualized victim that they've now conquered. Um, that's what my studies have shown. And I think it was 909, if I remember correctly, he had talked about a book um, that it was called um, the quarrel between poetry and philosophy. And in, the, in that, that particular text, they discussed how white people have codified their homosexual rape of black men just for that purpose. Um, so it's something people might want to look into. And the other thing I wanted to bring up was the section that you read from the um, Warmth of Other Sons kind of speaks to um, what I call the homosexual, homosexualization of the ancestor Frederick Douglass, because when you read the fact that they actually cut off his genitals, forced him to eat them, and then and other body parts that they cut off from him, and then also say that he liked it before they killed him, that would be like the author saying that because he ate his own genitals and ate the other body parts that he really liked auto-cannibalism. So to me, it's the same way of blaming um, the ancestor Frederick Douglass for being in a situation that is not of his making. He's being coerced and violently terrorized into into thinking and being, excuse me, uh, 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 thinking and forced to participate in deviant sexual behavior. And we're now blaming them for blaming him for it or attempting to homosexualize him as if he did this willingly and that he had the agency to make this decision on his own. Thank you. And I'll meet my line. folks have any other uh, comments that they wanted to make sure they got in before we uh, move forward? I'd like to say one last thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, it says on page 120, uh, Frederick Douglass was uh, beginning to realize an interconnection between the rebirth of the nation and the personal rebirth. Douglas broke from white abolitionists in opposition to predominant abolitionist views. Douglas became convinced that there was no necessity for dissolving the union between the North and the Southern states. And then later on, he made a point for slavery itself being unconstitutional. And I thought that was interesting. I'll mute my line. Mm -hmm. Any other commentary folks want to make sure they get in? I know one thing that stood out for me in reading this section is uh, this reminded me of uh, some of the different books that, that I've read from 
white authors uh, over the years where they will have constructive information within the text. Uh, but there will also be a lot of instances where it's like, hmm, I suspect that they are practicing uh, racism and you kind of have to <clears throat> you kind of have to use your brain computer to make make choices about what you think is constructive information. I think this is valid. I think this is something that I can, you know, uh, interrogate, investigate a little more and use moving forward. This this is something that I don't think is valid uh, that I think, you know, in whichever way is practicing supporting racism, white supremacy, and I'm going to discard and or I'm just going to make sure that I tag this as an example of racism. Uh, and then maybe I'll use it in the future as to how uh, this is, you know, one of the ways that racism is practiced so I can use it and deconstruct it to other victims. Um, I guess what would be what would be your response if anyone said, well, hey, I think some of you all at least have said, hey, I think I think Woodard and the editors, I think they got it right about sexual about the sexual abuse, uh, homosexual abuse that Frederick Douglass may have been subjected to and him going through and decoding that and saying that, hey, I think this is there and this this was more widespread than we've been led to believe. He says that last week we accept that. How do you come back this week and say, well, hey, I, I reject. I think, you know, that he is just trying to insert his own politics and maybe even look for his own identity in, in some of uh, the narrative that he's constructed here. Uh, and all of this about Frederick Douglass being a, a male daughter and him having this fluidity in gender. And he didn't see himself in this as a as a staunch uh, example of black masculinity because of his experiences. Uh, what would you say to people who say, well, hey, you all you all accepted what they had to say last week about the interpretation. Then you come back this week and reject reject some of the exact same commentary related to the exact same person, Frederick Douglass. How can you do that? What would your response be? Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. If, well, I wouldn't argue with a black person, VGQ, with a white person, whatever. Um, but the difference for me between last week's reading and this week's reading was last week's reading focused on opening up his narrative to find the spaces where he was perhaps having a double consciousness and speaking in code. The text says that, that he would always speak in code and others would always speak in code. So what stuck out to me about last week's reading was moments where we saw Frederick Douglass more as um, a vulnerable human being, a vulnerable black male in situations where he would be taken advantage of sexually by these white men in the situations that he was in. And so that's why I was like, well, that absolutely makes sense because sometimes the conversation around black, black male rape specifically doesn't happen. So unless it's something that we are saying, this is what is possible is happening here. We're not going to actually read into that many times. So that's what I appreciated about last week. This week, I was able to see where maybe the author said or whoever edited this text after the author passed or however this happened, use that preliminary part to make overarching assumptions about Frederick D Douglass's nature, gender, and to make uh, just like to derive conclusions that are really, they wouldn't be admissible in court. You're, you're making like some, you're just making it up. We don't really know. Now, Frederick Douglass, someplace in his text says, look, I enjoy having sex with men or something like that. Then, okay, then maybe. But to be looking and making these, uh, they're just 
conclusions off of really nothing. And I didn't appreciate that. Before we're using what Frederick Douglass said and saying, well, that would make sense in the context of racism, white supremacy, in the context of slavery. He was an enslaved person. He does talk about this rape, what that must have been like. So we're made to sympathize, empathize, and really put him in context versus being Frederick Douglass, the icon. This one, he tore it down and just pretty much was like, well, he's a male daughter and like all these other things that I couldn't necessarily like logically seem to to push an end versus being specific and clarifying a person, if that makes any sense. That's what I would say. We had time for maybe one more response before we get to the second audio. Anybody else want to respond if the, the question I pose makes sense? Can I be heard? I'll be heard. Uh, heard both Rob in Wisconsin and uh, Roz. Let's see. Uh, we'll get Rob in Wisconsin. Okay. Uh, really quickly, uh, last week I remember asking the question, was Frederick Douglass right? So I think that um, last week he alluded to it. This week it was um, blatant. Um, he told you what happened, and um, <clears throat> I think that um, he was Frederick Douglass was really feminized this week. And um, I'm not quite clear on if the author is really. Um, pushing an agenda or not, um, and I'm not clear because of the uh, anti-sexual uh, um, subject is uh, just confusing for me. Thank you. Uh, Roz, you want to respond briefly before we get to the second audio? Sure, sure. Yes, thank you. Um, I disagree. I agree with um, with uh, Emmy. And uh, in the sense that everything this week is more taken out of context, it's much more opinionated, and it's much more centered on, to me, the power of suggestion, because for them to, for the, either the author or the editors to write stuff like, we have to see him as a male mother and things of that nature, they're suggesting that we go into this mindset, which is something that white supremacists do. And even if uh, Frederick Douglass came out and said, yes, I like to have sex with men, he was psychosexually, socially conditioned to do so within the context of the slave situation that he found himself in. So who's to say that he was really gay if he was to come out and say that um, in the context of you being raped and being forced to accept this particular modality of living on a sexual level simply because the people in power are forcing you to do so? And with anybody else who's been oppressed and abused and terrorized, eventually, if you think that your situation will never change for the rest of your life, you're going to be in this situation. At some point, you're going to psychologically amalgamate and acclimate yourself to that life and say, this is the life I'm left to live. Now I have to try and get in where I fit in because this is not going to change before I close my eyes permanently. And these are the contexts that we have to see this stuff in so that we don't, like you, like you said earlier, walk into looking at an ancestral slave situation with modern racist anti-sexual sensibilities. Thank you. Right on. We will leave it there. Uh, we will pick up uh, where we left off. So we are uh, chapter four, chapter four, kind of uh, the early portion of chapter four, deciphering 
black male rape uh, is where we left off at. If you have questions that pertain to what we just uh, finished reading and you didn't get to share your comments, just make a note and we should have ample time to share once the second audio segment concludes. This is uh, Vincent Woodard, the delectable Negro, context of white supremacy, audio segment number two. Deciphering Black Male Rape On the subject of parallels and pairings, I want to begin my discussion of Luke by drawing our attention to a common and consistently invoked 19th century pairing. I am thinking of the dialectic between the liberated, freedom-seeking black man and the so-called slave. As noted earlier, David Walker consistently grounds his rhetorical claims to manhood in the dynamic of man versus brutish slave. Speaking to enslaved brethren, he asks, Are we men? And then later affirms that we are men and not brutes. Elsewhere in Walker's appeal, he proclaims, Oh, my colored brethren all over the world, when shall we arise from this death-like apathy and be men? The natural counterpoint to Walker's appeal to manhood is the slave. Rhetorically speaking, without the slave, there could be no liberated black man, as they each mutually defined and demarcated the threshold of the other. In terms of consumption, Walker regarded the slave as a natural byproduct of the culture of consumption. Like slabs of meat, slaves are man are made through acts of butchering and murdering, their flesh seasoned and tendered through cruel acts of self-consumption. Walker describes how a son might take his mother, who bore almost the pains of death to give him birth, and by the command of a tyrant, strip her naked as she came into the world and apply the cowhide to her. Such initiatory acts make a man into a slave, according to Walker, and render him vulnerable to the compulsive urges of whites who gorge and satiate themselves upon such twisted acts of violence. Walker's conception of man versus slave reflected general abolitionist thought. A popular abolitionist image conveys this dialectic. The widely used anti-slavery emblem was a manacled slave kneeling in supplication. The caption to this image read, Am I not a man and brother? How could a man be both manly and a slave? Argued abolitionists, who believed that slavery unmanned and systematically consumed black men. Black activist Maria W. Stewart, speaking before a group of black Bostonians in 1831, admonished, O oh, ye fearful ones, throw off your fearfulness. If you are men, convince whites that you possess the spirit of men. To Stewart's thinking, real black men overcame their fears and were assertive in the world, acting as brave sons of Africa, able to draw upon their noble heritage. Whereas Africa signified under slavery, heathenism, and the loss of a cultural legacy, manhood makes possible the transformation of even Africa into a noble and enlivening landscape. The general tide in abolitionist rhetoric was towards manhood and away from a deeper, more complicated meaning of the slave. For example, 
in his bold assertions of black manhood, Walker countered Thomas Jefferson's ideas of the black slave as heathen, akin to the orangutan, and in reason much inferior to the white man. Walker does not complicate the reality of slave experience by exploring how a man could be a man and also be sexually violated and lacking in paternal authority or, for that matter, a slave and also a noble and reasoning human being. Instead, he relies upon a dichotomy wherein manhood transcends all of the negative unseemly, unseemly connotations of enslavement in consistently positioning manhood over slave status Black abolitionists tend to reinforce a false dichotomy in which manhood always represented the good and discerning path towards freedom. The condition of the slave, on the other hand, embodied the most depraved and unspeakable acts of black experience. Douglas gives us an example of these unspeakable dimensions of slave experience in his first slave narrative. After witnessing the brutal beating of his aunt Hester, Douglas lets on that this is not the worst what he will see or what he will be forced to participate in. He has not words, he says, to describe the sensations and awarenesses that accompanies his brutal initiation. It was the first of a long series of such outrages of which I, I was doomed to be a witness and a participant. It struck me with awful force. It was the most awful spectacle. I wish I could commit to paper the feelings with which I beheld it. Douglas never describes this scenario, which recurs in his latter narratives in graphic detail. Nor do we ever glean from Douglas's other published writings deeper insight into the secret, unspeakable world to which he refers. In chapter 3, I demonstrated how the legacy and ontology of the slave carries over continues beyond the temporal feeling of the freeing of the slave. I contend that it is a slave, in Douglas, who is essential to understanding the limitations, horizons, and potentials of the free and emancipated man. I reference this distinction between man and slave because it is crucial to understand understanding why Jacobs chose to narrate Luke's story of explicit male sexual violation in the first place. Jacob's narrative is, at least on the surface, a story about black female violation and the recuperative powers of motherhood. In the preface to the slave narrative, Jacob makes clear that she writes on behalf of the condition of two millions of women at the South, still in bondage, suffering what I suffered, and most of them far worse. Black male sexual violation did not figure into Jacob's gender and sex politics, which might explain why scholars have had very little to say about Luke or why Jacob chose to tell his story. For the most part, scholars of Jacob's narrative have either ignored the subject of male rape or misrecognized it. P. Gabriel Foreman refers to Luke as a rare example of homosexual abuse to which male narrators rarely, if ever, admit, but does not himself analyze the import and significance of Luke to the larger narrative. And Bradford Warner cites Luke as a 
terse example of slave vernacular, making no reference to his sexual treatment. Jean Fagan Yellen, the preeminent Jacobs biographer, painstakingly tracks down all manner of minute detail in historical fact from Jacobs' narrative, but leaves untouched the subject of male rape and the broader implications of homoeroticism on the plantation. Maurice Wallace offers the most insightful understanding of Luke and sodomy belief of the time period. Luke's master suffers, according to Jacobs, from excessive dissipation. Wallace traces this malady to the medical science of the period. Excessive dissipation and palsy were the consequences of sexual perversions including masturbation and sodomy, for which the usual prognosis was progressive dementia. Using the terminology of the time period, Wallace helps us understand how Jacob's reading of Luke's master as demented and sexually strange coincided with medical notions of sodomy as an illness of the mind and body. What Luke meant, though, as an outgrowth of his master's sexual illness has little to do with the politics of why Jacobs chose to tell his story. Two centuries early, a New Netherland court executed Jan Curly for committing sodomy upon the body of Manuel Congo. The court defined both Creole and Congo as sodomites, black sodomites. The reason their stories were told had to with the preservation of Christian morals and values. Both blacks were condemned of God and as, as an abomination. Elsewhere in the colonies, separate sodomy legislation for blacks would affirm how, in the minds of whites, the black sodomite was a natural outgrowth of African heathenism and an innate immorality. We cannot separate a sexual interpretation of Creole, Congo, or Luke from larger institutionalized conceptions of the Negro as sexually licentious and amoral. The reasons Jacobs chose to tell Luke's story would have differed greatly from the political aims of the Christian state. Yet I use this state example to demonstrate how moral, political, and state-making ideology informed the depiction of black sodomites or rape black men in the colonial United States. Questions of intentionality direct us to the political unity behind the colonial era depictions of black male homoeroticism. Jacob's motive in telling Luke's story takes on even greater import when we recall that black people on the whole did not write about male rape or homoeroticism. Of the hundreds of thousands of pages of narrative, testimony, recorded speeches, and liberationist tracts written by black men, we have yet to recover overt depictions of male rape or homoeroticism. For black women, such a topic was even more taboo, as it suggested sexual licentiousness and a knowledge of sexual matters that most women disavowed. Jacobs knew that these rhetorical slash sexual politics were well. A master of rhetorical strategies, she single-handedly revisited the conventions of the slave narrative, the sentimental novel, and the uplift tract to construct a unique and singular document about black female liberation and womanhood under slavery. For such a woman, 
the telling of Luke's story had a profound political import that we can access only partially through sexual interpretations of his master and his treatment under his master. Thinking of Jacob's intentionality in terms of the man-slave dialectic, Jacob's can entertain certain elements of Luke's sexual abuse and personal history because he never, within the schema of her narrative, enters into or threatens the sacred precincts of manhood. Most of the scholarship on Jacob's narrative focuses quite appropriately on the centrality of motherhood and on Jacob's frequent appeals throughout the narrative to the cult of true womanhood. Alongside her claims to femininity and motherhood, though, Jacob's intended her narrative to document the parallel plight of black men, which she understood to complement her model for the black woman as nurturer and sustainer of the race. For example, in a chapter titled, The Slave Who Dared to Feel Like a Man, she documents at length the parallel struggles of her brother, Benjamin, to sustain an embattled sense of manhood. Luke's story, on the other hand, takes up approximately two and a half pages of the narrative and focuses on his sexualized treatment, his folk-like ignorance, and his lack of moral perspective. Where Benjamin complements and provides a parallel to his sister story, Luke represents the extent to which the channel institution can unman an individual in terms of the man-slash-slave dynamic. We might think of Luke, according to Jacob's logic, as the perfect embodiment of the slave. Of all the males, slaves depicted in the narrative, Luke's sexual violation marks him as the most depraved and the most degraded and the most apt object of the male unspeakable. Long before we get to Luke, a poor, ignorant, depraved specimen of manhood, Jacobs drops hints and suggestions that dictate how we are to read and interpret Luke's lack of manhood. The first of these hints comes in chapter 8 of the narrative, titled, What Slaves Are Taught to Think of the North. Jacobs begins by commenting on the deceptive tricks of masters. One master describes to his slaves the horrible and impoverished circumstances of free life. A slaveholder once told me, Jacobs recites, that he had seen a runaway friend of mine in New York, and that she besought him to take her back to her master, for she was literally dying of starvation. That many days she had only one cold potato to eat, and at other times could get nothing at all. According to Jacobs, many of the general mass of slaves believe such lies which result not only in their physical bondage, but also in the enslavement of their minds and sensibilities. Black men under such circumstances do not understand that freedom could make them useful men. Nor did they understand, according to Jacobs, how freedom could enable them to protect their wives and children. Suddenly, Jacobs argues against the belief that the Negro was innately heathen. She admits that the black man in slavery is a heathen, but blames the state on the absence of proper Christian training, 
the denial of the paternal role and the inherently heathen nature of the institution of slavery. Jacobs navigates a fine line between the innately heathen Africa and her New World African-American heathen who is, unlike his ancestors, a victim of circumstances. The slave is heathen, either by ancestry or circumstances, and the man walks free of ideological as well as literal shackles. Heathen black men or slaves, by definition, could not protect their wives and children. They were sneaky, ignorant, and susceptible to the mental suggestions of their masters. Some poor creatures have been so brutalized by the lash they will sneak out of the way to give their masters free access to their wives and daughters. Do you think this proves the black man to belong to an inferior order of being? Jacob's response to her own question a couple of lines later. I admit the black man is inferior. In contrast to the inferiority of the slave, Jacob's first chooses for herself a free black man whom she desires to marry. Her master does not allow this union, so she later chooses an erotic relationship with a white man who does not own slaves. Compared with these chivalric models of manhood, Jacobs finds enslaved men an inferior order of beings. Not only can Luke not protect a hypothetical wife or child from abuse, he cannot protect himself from the sexual licentiousness of his master. Luke's unnamed master chains the black man to his bed. Having fallen prey to the vices growing out of the patriarchal institution, Luke Master perpetuates the strangest freaks of despotism. Jacobs leaves it to her reader to imagine the details of these sexual acts, but does make clear in her references to the patriarchal institution and the Master's degraded wreck of manhood how thoroughly unmanned is Luke in the process of enslavement. She uses the term patriarchal institution elsewhere in the narrative to refer to masters who sexually violate black women on the plantation. Luke's master treats him like a black woman. Jacobs does not go so far, however, as to label Luke as feminine or womanly. Her politics of black womanhood do not allow for feminine or womanly men. Instead, she references his feminine nature through allusions to the master's sexual dominance and implicit comparisons with other black men who presumably avoid Luke's fate. For example, Jacobs describes Peter, the black man who assists her in her final escape, as a brave, enterprising, noble-hearted man who was a chattel. Technically speaking, Peter is a slave like Luke. However, the author casts Luke as poor, ignorant, and much abused, even after she encounters him following his escape in the North. Within Jacob's paradigm of masculinity, black men fall into one of two categories, man or slave. In the above-mentioned chapter titled, The Slave Who Dare to Feel Like a Man, she focuses on the evolution of her brother, Benjamin. From slave to man. The culminating moment of Benjamin's manhood is the prototypical physical battle between slave and master.
One day, the master tries to whip Benjamin. He resisted. Master and slave fought, and finally the master was thrown. Benjamin had cause to tremble, for he had thrown to the ground his master, one of the richest men in town. In pursuit of his manhood, Benjamin flees the plantation. His master captures him. He escapes again. And finally, he achieves permanent free status in the north. Physical combat, literal escape, and longing for a lost paternal figure typify the journey of the real man that Benjamin represents. Luke, by comparison, does not flee from his abuser, nor does he engage, in, engage him in a warrior-type physical battle. Instead of depicting Luke as brave, enterprising, and intelligent, Jacobs depicts him as defeated and degraded. A slave who dares not to feel or act as a man. Just because Luke is sexually violated, though, does not mean that he is not brave, enterprising, or intelligent. His escape from slavery indicates, on some level, he maintained a reserve of bravery and enterprise that allowed him to outsmart local paddy rollers and slave catchers. Yet to allow Luke this complexity would necessitate looking more deeply at the erotic tie between master and slave, and on Jacob's part, working from a politics of black womanhood that did not depend upon dichotomies of ennobled man versus emasculated slave. In her presentation of Luke, Jacobs implicitly draws upon plantation codes of black masculine shame and self-blame. According to James Oliver Horton and Lewis Horton, among the slaves, men who refused to submit to the master's authority were accorded respect. Them as won't fight, reported Lewis Clark, is called pokeasy. This unspoken honor code helps explain the sparse historical record regarding male rape. Admission to rape, more than any other act I can think of, would have called into question a black man's honor. Luke's master had greatly diminished physical strength. He had to call in the constable to administer beatings for him. According to the unspoken black male code of honor, Luke represented a least respectable model of black masculinity, if he registered as a man at all. In contrast, black women could undergo rape and still emerge from such circumstances as honorable, contributing members of the race. In the context of racial, up, racial uplift, both black men and women bartered in black female violation. For black men, it represented the greatest measure of their emasculation, and for black women, such as Jacobs, the reality of rape informed her politics of black womanhood and motherhood. Trudier Harris offers a useful assessment of the gender politics of rape during a, and following slavery. Her explanation helps us understand why Luke has no gender identity outside of the ambiguous sexuality of the slave. Though rape black women, she contends, were psychologically warped, their sexual violation does not lead to a subtraction from their persons. The implicit reference here is the castrated or emasculated black male. She continues, no matter the father of her children, 
she still was able to fulfill in spite of the conditions under which the fulfillment was carried out. Her traditional role as woman within the society, that of bearer of children. The black male, on the other hand, could only envision his worth in intangible ways. Harris raises several illuminating and useful points. First, she points to an implicit sexual politics within black uplift ideology. According to these politics, black people have historically identified black women with the womb, with reproduction, while they have identified black men with the penis or phallic agency. After slavery, lynching and castration came to symbolize black masculinity and male violation. The raped wife and maternal figure, examples of which proliferate in slave narratives and abolitionist writings, came to signify the defilement of black womanhood. Luke's sexual violation does not fit neatly into either of these categories. We do not know exactly how his anus and penis were used in the context of sexual abuse. And as far as transcending his sexual violation, his rape does not reap children, the ultimate sign of female accomplishment. The only access to gender and sexuality for Luke and for black men in general is through the black woman. If he can have the black woman possess her and protect her, then he is a man. If not, he is devoid of manhood. In Jacob's version of this equation, black men had neither gender role nor sexual identity outside of their main role of protecting and complementing the black woman. In this equation, black male sexual violation is, in and of itself, a zero factor. Black male gender roles mean nothing in relationship to black or white men. When we speak of the absence of historical examples of male rape, we are implicitly referring to a worldview in which the rape of black men had no cultural currency, had neither psychic nor political import. And so in order to tell Luke's story, Jacobs has to work through an alternative constellation of signs and social meanings. Framing Luke as a slave makes this his articulation possible. The slave was already understood in the negative, as the opposite of what the positive and sustaining characteristics of the heroic black man. Where the heroic black man stood apart from the relational and affectional ties that endeared and bound black men to whites, either through escape or frequent acts of resistance, the male slave was erotically available as caretaker, nursemaid, uncle, and domesticated servant. The correlation between Luke and slave status, I am suggesting, should inspire us to look anew at the discursive excuse me, look anew at the discursive implications of the slave within antebellum black liberationist discourse. Rather than presuming, as we commonly do, that black people on the whole adopted Victorian attitudes about sexuality, it might be more correct to assume that black people maintained complicated understandings of the slave's life in being as intrinsically sexualized. Among his numerous meanings, 
Luke is an indicator of a realm of sexual experience and discourse that 19th century gender and sexual norms only obscure. The Master Epicure We might recover some of the discursive potential of the slave through a deeper exploration of hunger and consumption on the plantation. The culture of consumption constituted a complicated terrain wherein the slave effected resistance, occupied, often occupied a gender and sexual variant status, and constituted itself through violent and coercive homoerotic ties to the master. The category of slave in such contexts was essentially fluid and informed by a larger dynamic of plantation incest, relational ties between whites and blacks, and, most importantly, the white person's cultivated hunger for black flesh and soul. Before inserting Luke into the context I am describing, let me first explain the centrality of sex and human consumption within Jacob's narrative. Jacob's depicted scenes of consumption more gruesome than those documented by any of her contemporaries. The only woman to come close to horrors that few wanted to confront was Lydia Maria Child. Child penned the introduction to Jacob's narrative and wrote the widely read An Appeal in Favor of That Class of Americans Called Africans, 1833. An Appeal was a groundbreaking abolitionist tract that documented the horrors of slavery and depicted Africans as having a cultural legacy and an innate moral character. At the age of 31, Child was hailed as the best-known woman writer in America. However, after the publication of An Appeal, most of the Beacon Street homes that had once welcomed its author were henceforth closed to her. The Boston, the Boston and Athenaeum canceled her membership. Sales for her books declined and subscriptions to Juvenile Miscellany dropped off so sharply that the magazine ceased publication in 1834. Many had come to know Child as a paragon of female virtue and domestic cultivation. Part of the reason for her ostracization stemmed from her graphic and what some considered licentious and unsexed depictions of slavery. One illustrated page in the text features sketches of more common torture devices, the iron cuffs, iron shackles, thumb screw, and speculum oris, and detailed explanations of how each device functioned. Prefiguring Jacob's depictions of consumption, Child describes a 10-month-old baby boiled alive aboard a slave schooner. In one of the most graphic depictions of plantation violence from the era, Child describes the literal butchering and cooking of a recalcitrant young slave on a Kentucky plantation. Adding insult to the injured, delicate sensibilities of her readers, Child alludes in an appeal to the fortunes of Bostonians made by the sale of Negro blood, advocates for the legalization of marriage between persons of different colors, and argues against Massachusetts' support of the Fugitive Slave Law. As a result of her own painful social ostracization, 
and with an eye toward preserving Jacob's female respectability, Child recommended that Jacobs compile all of the incidents of flesh consumption and references to human cannibalism in one chapter of the narrative. In the chapter from the slave narrative titled, Sketches of Neighboring Slaveholders, Jacobs depicts bodies literally consumed by vermin, literally cooked, or having cooked iron things applied to their flesh. Masters starve their slaves, do not allow them to breastfeed their young, and in other ways introduce bonded persons into the consumptive machinery of slave culture. The idea of slavery itself as a living and consuming thing is difficult to imagine. However, Jacobs brings this reality to life by depicting scenarios of consumption that involve machines, shackles, and mechanical contrivances. As a punishment for trying to escape, one slave was placed between the screws of the cotton gin to stay as long as he had been in the woods. The cotton gin was then screwed down, only allowing him room to turn on his side when he could not lie on his back. The master's placing of the slave literally between the screws of the cotton gin at the point at which the cotton feeds into the machine makes even more graphic the consumptive relationship between chattel person and machine. What follows, while the man is positioned thusly, emphasizes his master's feeding of him to the machinery of slavery. Every morning, a slave was sent with a piece of bread and a bowl of water, which were placed within reach of the poor fellow. Four days passed, and the slave continued to carry the bread and the water. On the second morning, he found the bread gone, but the water untouched. When he had been in the press four days and five nights, the slave informed his master that the water had not been used for four mornings and that a horrible stench came from the gin house. The overseer was sent to examine into it. When the press was unscrewed, the dead body was found partially eaten by rats and vermin. Perhaps the rats that devoured his bread had gnawed him before his life was extinct. As I have noted earlier, slaves consistently referred to slavery as a consuming, bloodthirsty institution, and slavers as human butchers and the like. But incidents such as this one applied concrete images and scenario to a reality that we have tended to largely dismiss as metaphoric or a residue of the slave's traumatized imagination. For example, in her slave narrative, the history of Mary Prince, a West Indian slave. Mary Prince makes constant reference to slavery as a process of butchery and to slaves as butchered meat. Describing herself on the auction block, Prince laments, It was soon surrounded by strange men, who examined and handled me in the same manner that a butcher would a calf or a lamb he was about to purchase. Later in the narrative, she describes her transition from one master to another as going from one butcher to another. While those who study slavery have been willing to acknowledge the authority of slaves to speak on the subject of what slaves feel about the morality of slavery, we have yet to fully grant this acknowledgement to the disturbing reality and moral implications of slave consumption. In addition to the cotton gin punishment, 
Jacobs records other systemic processes of consumption. On a neighboring plantation, there lived an extremely wealthy man who owned upward of 600 slaves, many of whom he did not know by sight. In response to slaves' frequent stealing and eating of hogs, this master developed a mode of punishment that entailed the culinary preparation of flesh. Of his many styles of punishment, a favorite one was to tie a rope around a man's body and suspend him from the ground. A fire was kindled over him, from which was suspended a piece of fat pork. As this cooked, the scalding drops of fat continually fell on the bare flesh. Typically, in the kitchen of the plantation big house was a piece of pork fat served as seasoning in, say, a pot of beans or stew. Within a modern-day soul food repertoire, collard greens are still prepared in many kitchens with pork fat or ham hock, a tradition that stems back to slavery. This practice, which makes no sense in our contemporary, largely sedentary and non-agrarian society, was a means by which slaves could avail themselves of desperately needed fat and sustenance that they would need to draw upon during backbreaking field labor. Pork meat was typically associated with starvation and hunger under slavery. Hog stealing reached such proportions that in 1748, Virginia decreed the death penalty for a third offense. Aware of the premium placed on pork meat by the starving slave, this master's punishment was doubly cruel, as it punished the slave first for simply hungering, and second with the scalding, liquefied flesh that he could otherwise consume as nourishment. Rather than the typical process of fattening up a food source, the inverted man conveys how starvation and hunger induction make the slave ready for consumption. The master demonstrates that the slave is an emotional and physical food source by situating him within an inverted cooking scenario. The master situates the slave below the cooking fire and the scalding grease used to season and temper his flesh. In another less graphic example, Jacob depicts what happens to a man on a plantation caught stealing food. His master chains him to a tree, beats him, and then starves him to the point of visible emaciation. If a slave stole from him, the master, even a pound of meat or peck of corn, if detection followed, he was put in chains and imprisoned and so kept till his form was attenuated by hunger and suffering. These larger systemic examples of consumption took on more intimate, erotic connotations within the domestic sphere of the plantation, where social death rather than literal death was the preferred outcome. Orlando Patterson's description of the master as human parasite feeding his sense of honor and his sexual appetite through the slave is borne out in the Jacob narrative. Jacob describes her own master, Dr. Flint, as possessed of a restless, craving, vicious nature. Flint habitually roved about day and night seeking whom to devour. In Jacob's life, Flint's hunger takes on a sexual significance that involves his consistently propositioning her for sex, inviting her to be his concubine, writing notes that spell out explicitly his sexual intentions, and physically abusing her when she does not acquiesce. 
context of white supremacy. That is where we will wrap for this week. Uh, we're in chapter four. We'll pick up there next Friday, uh, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, folks have commentary they would like to share on this segment of the reading. Uh, feel free. Uh, the number six four one seven one five three six four zero, and the code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, I suspect I could be in error. Uh, folks enjoyed the second audio segment a bit more than the first segment, but we shall see. Uh, everyone who has a hand up, line should be open. No commentary from uh, the second audio segment? Maybe everyone was just as disgusted. No, actually, I did have commentary. I was just trying to find my space and place. I lost my place in the book. Um, so I, I guess I'll just start now. I think I just found what I was looking for. Um, so yeah, I do like the, the second readings um, better than the first because he seems not to be making um, suggestive commentary, I would say, compared to the commentary that was made on uh, Frederick Douglass on the section on Frederick Douglass. But um, to get into the text on page 132, um, he writes, rhetorically speaking, without the slave, there could be no liberated black man. They each mutually defined and demarcated the threshold of the other. In terms of consumption, Walker regarded the slave as a natural byproduct of the culture of consumption. Like slabs of meat, slaves are made through acts of butchering and murdering. Their flesh seasoned and tendered through cruel acts of self-consumption. Walker describes how, excuse me, how a son might take his mother, who bore him, almost the pains, almost to the pains of death, to give birth to him, and by the command of a tyrant, strip her naked as the day she came into the world, and apply the cowhide to her. Such initiatory, initiatory acts make a man into a slave, according to Walker, and render him vulnerable to the consumptive urges of whites who gorge and satiate themselves upon such twisted acts of violence. So this section is very interesting because it kind of speaks to me um, to some of the origins of anti-blackness, where you have uh, a black male who's made to strip his own mother and then mercilessly beat her at the command of this white, white person who owns him and who has been probably sexually and physically abusing and terrorizing both of them. So ultimately, I'm thinking if this happens on a regular basis, eventually his mother might come to despise him as much as the master because he is now the conduit of her, uh, her, her uh, sexual disrespect as well as the consumption and abuse of her physical person. No different than uh, when you have a black overseer that was propositioned to beat a slave and if he didn't beat the slave with all the power he could muster, the, uh, the white overseer would tell him, if you don't beat her, then I'm going to beat both of you, and I'm going to beat you worse simply because you didn't do what I said. So to me, that kind of facilitates that, that ability to look at the other black person who's enslaved like you, who is also a victim, 
as the facilitator of your pain. And it kind of reminds me on a psychological level of some of the stuff I've spoken about in reference to my wife and how she views um, white people and black people uh, due to her understanding that most of her uh, most painful experiences have come at the hands of some of her own, uh, some of our own people, black people. So um, it just kind of made me think of that. Um, oh, here on the following page, 134, he writes, Gene Sagan Yellen, the preeminent Jacobs biographer, painstakingly tracks down all manner of minute detail and historical facts from Jacobs' narrative, but leaves untouched the subject of male rape and the broader implications of homoeroticism on the plantation. And um, for some reason, I've, and I thought about this even with the first reading, there seems to be there a juxtaposition of male rape and homoeroticism where it's almost like the the concept of rape is erotic. And I don't know if that is something that the author is trying to imply, because when you look at, at homosexuality, it's basically a form of sodomy. And it's, it's sodomy, essentially. And when you're looking at sodomy, it's something that's usually applied in the context of raping someone. Um, so to me, it just seems like the way that homoeroticism and male rape go hand in hand, it's almost like, they go hand in hand to the point where they're being juxtaposed against each other because what would be rape for the black male would be homoeroticism for the white male. But yet he also tries to, tries to project in some cases the homosexual uh, 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 urges on the victim. So it's just, I find that to be just very interesting. Um, on the following page, uh, he writes, for, the, for, the, for example, in a chapter entitled The Slave Who Dared to Feel Like a Man, she documents at length the parallel struggles of her brother Benjamin to sustain an embattled sense of manhood. Luke's story, on the other hand, takes up approximately two and a half pages of the narrative and focuses on his sexualized treatment, his folk-like ignorance, and his lack of moral perspective, where Benjamin compliments I mean, he accompaniments and provides a parallel to his sister's story. Luke represents the extent to which the chattel institution can unman an individual. In terms of the man-slave dynamic, we might think of Luke, according to Jacob's logic, as the perfect embodiment of the slave. Of all the male slaves depicted in the narratives, Luke's sexual violation marks him as the most depraved and the most degraded and the most apt object of the male unspeakable. And that, to me, kind of speaks to her, or this, this section, the understanding of the context in which Luke was being, uh, being homosexualized because he actually did end up running away, which means that there was somewhere in there he was seeking liberation and that he, he was forced to deal with the situation that he was given as far as being raped. And I don't know what uh, Mr. Jacobs was thinking, but who's to say that he enjoyed that? You understand what I'm saying? Because later on he ran away from, ran away from the plantation and, and freed himself, which indicates that somewhere in there there was a burning desire to be free. And I'm pretty sure part of that desire to be free had to do with being free from being raped by another male. Um, I'll stop there and give someone else a chance to speak. Thank you, and I'll meet no one. Appreciate that. Other folks that we have not heard from, if you have commentary, feel free. Hello, may I proceed? Yes, sir. Greetings peace to all of the callers and the host. Yes, this interesting portion of the reading, to me, I think it, it might be evidence that 
one listen to the cows too often whenever you have a cowbell go off in your head in reading. So a couple of times. Specifically, I think it was Jacobs, who I don't have the title in front of me, but she said she with non-white males and took up relations with a white man. Really interesting how a person who had escaped from slavery. The same behavior sometimes is seen, I've noticed, in non-white people who leave horrific neighborhood conditions, growing up in certain areas and find themselves migrating over to areas where a lot of white people live and, and having relations with them. I feel that that's a very common pattern in the system of white supremacy, how the confusion and uh, white people, of course, take advantage of that, which is very apt, I, I believe, comparison to child molestation. I also thought that the portion that I spoke about beatings, uh, the beatings, the beatings, those are much in my mind. I have two young children, and whenever portions of the book talk about beatings, it makes me think of how I was raised. A lot of non-white, specifically black children in this part of the world are beat, and, and it's seen as a form of discipline. I mean, I, I know it's been touched on previously, but it's, it's been running some ran into my mind, um, just kind of drilled in about how, how beating was just such a major part of just the slave's life, uh, specifically holding down someone else. I remember mostly growing up holding down my brother while my mother would beat him. And when I read the passage about holding down his own mother to, to, be, to be beaten by the master, I felt that was, um, that was telling that we, we have this long behavior. And uh, the final point that I thought was, was uh, kind of marked is this uh, homosexuality and how today there's this modern-day fixation um, with the butt, the buttocks. And undoubtedly, white society and white supremacists put that out there. That's, that's like this behavior is, is common to them, and, and, and it's more than seen. I mean, because everyone was fair game during that time period, man or woman. Uh, the cotton gin scene, I'm sorry, the, the, last, the cotton gin uh, scene to me was, was really telling because it just shows the depth and, and also how consumption is just a game. White people are killed and made for fun. If it's not an animal, it's a, it's a black person which they see as an animal. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's fun for them. So those questions of reading stuck out to me. I'll, I'll take my time off. Thank you. Watch that word fair. Uh, any uh, folks that we have not heard from, second audio segment, uh, do you have commentary? Yes. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, yes, I found it interesting that uh, in the part of the book where they were talking about, I guess that's Harriet Jacob, uh, depictions of uh, uh uh, how some slave was treated. <clears throat> then uh, 
Charles, they referred to, uh, I believe she's a white woman, and how she was hailed as the best known woman right in America. And <laughs> she started to write and reveal some uh, truths, I guess, about uh, the system. And it just shows how uh, when you break a code, how there's consequences to be paid for whites that uh, violate these codes. Then her sales on a book declined, and uh, they, uh, I think they wanted somebody cancel her membership. So, um, and some of the things that she revealed were torture devices, iron cuffs, iron shackles, thumb screws, and the speculative horse which is the uh, picture that's on the front of the book. But I'll mute my line. Thanks, Gus, for taking the call. Can I be heard? You're a little low. If you could speak up, please, Amy. Sure. Is this any better, if I do like this? Much better. Okay. Um, I don't... Uh, forgive me, I don't... I, I'm driving, so I can't reference the text exactly with page numbers and such but um, one of the things that I'm really taking away from the overall text and I'm sure it'll be solidified towards the end is the conditioning uh, he uses the word seasoning but one of the psychological terms I've been studying is the conditioning process um, and how you can shape behavior and although the book isn't emphasizing this as much because the book is not about this. I appreciated the caller before the last caller uh, talking about how she, um, Miss Jacobs, said no to a black man's proposal for marriage, but then entered into a quote-unquote exotic relationship with a white male. And the reason I'm, I think that's so interesting, not just because it's, you know, area eight and the cowbells and stuff, but that even without mass propaganda, like media and such like we have now, that's still the case, which I would kind of say that the same would be true for, like, okay, for instance, with Tyler Perry, there was a quote on another page where it said the grandmotherly role, I can, like, get it later at some other time, but, you know, when you condition behavior, you reward behavior as well. So when people are performing or an organism is performing the the way that you want it to, you can reinforce the behavior by rewarding the behavior. And then, you know, studies show that punishment doesn't necessarily stop a behavior. It like makes it regress or become like hidden. And then it morphs into some other kind of psychological pathology or something that's unhealthy to the individual because they don't want to, you know, express their dislike for something. And when I'm thinking about the homosexualizing of black males, it goes hand in hand with the, because Frederick Douglass uh, married a white woman, and then Jacobs married a white man. So this isn't a new phenomenon at all. And I've been paying attention to it. I think they are not one and the same, but very, very similar. That, like, that's a dissexual or dysfunctional sexual behavior as well. And um, 
one other thing that I kind of, this might not like mean anything, but to me it meant something that, you know, the whole conversation about the food, I know that's like a motif that's been in the text before, um, but sometimes I feel like we do ourselves an injustice in thinking that all that we've ever done or that we do, our behaviors, are the healthy ones, are um, something we developed in the system of slavery or in since we've been here. And I don't think that that's true. Like there are many African foods that incorporate having meat into the vegetable that's cooked, like having turkey neck or whatever with collard greens. And like I said, it's not necessarily related to the homosexualizing of black males, but it's something to point out that like our, our genesis is not um, here. And even when it comes to food, there are things that we've done, like that's just a way to get meat and vegetable at the same time. Um, then the last thing, because I'm almost done, thank goodness, with the blood of Emmett Till. So I've been highlighting in that book as well um, the whole consumption of black males, and especially this particular young black male. And the part about the boiling baby, I mean, it's just like the babies and the alligators is one thing. But I never, like, it wouldn't have dawned on me until I heard that that of boiling an entire black baby on and however they did it in whatever context. And so in the blood of Emmett Till, there's like this whole long talking about how white people don't do these things to children. Like these things should not happen to children, but they're always lying. And I think, you know, we've just been so conditioned, our behavior so shaped in such a unhealthy way sometimes I'm just like the book makes me wonder you know to the centuries like how you know how do we heal from it and uh without like trying to justify the behavior to say well we've been so conditioned so this is just what we're going to do because we don't know what else to do so but with that thank you any other commentary miss anybody Okay, I'll get in some of my uh, observations and then we'll see if we have time for other folks. Um, yeah, I too thought the, the boiled alive portion was important. Um, and I thought it was significant because I appreciate when people, when they construct a book and then <clears throat> all of the anecdotes or little stories that are brought in, they all uh, reinforce the main idea or theme that's being presented. Uh, and so pulling in this uh, anecdote from another uh, slave memoir where it's again the cannibalism uh, is being uh, presented. I just I thought that was uh, fantastic as well. Um, let's see. Next up. Uh, really important. We said uh, hundreds of thousands of pages of narratives, testimony, recorded speeches and liberationist tracts written by black men. We've yet to recover overt depictions of male rape or homoeroticism for black women. Such a topic was even more taboo as it suggested sexual licentiousness and a knowledge of sexual matters that most women disavowed. I think this is really important. I think it's also important. Mr. Fuller's talked about this. We've talked about this on the book publishing end. Racism, white supremacy means that white people decide what books get published uh, and frequently the editing of the books that are published. I certainly think in 1800s, I could certainly see racists saying, 
we're not going to publish a book where you talk about one of the joys of slavery is white men raping black males. We're not going to publish a book about that, which is pretty much, I think, the same climate that you have today for the most part. Uh, continuing. Um, let's see. The portion where she says, uh, this is talking about Harriet Jacobs' uh, memoir, autobiography, of all the male slaves depicted in the narrative, Luke's sexual violation marks him as the most depraved, most degraded, and the most apt object of the male unspeakable. I uh, just thought that seemed to give some weight, particularly, I think, quite a few listeners have said that they think there is something uh, special, uh, something acute about uh, male rape, uh, because that's just uh, that it, everything about that uh, process is a, is a different type of trauma uh, rape of anyone horrible and has traumatic impact but male rape in particular people have raised both male and female listeners have said that they think there's something uh, peculiarly devastating about that I uh, thought that passage kind of reinforced that at some level um, the portion the portion from Jacob's autobiography where she talks of, she gives kind of her views on how cowardly uh, black males are who will move out of the way so that white enslavers can rape their uh, black females, their wives or daughters. That is the product of terrorism. Uh, you see that even uh, today uh, where you have uh, black males who cannot today cannot just like Luke cannot protect themselves from sexual abuse. When I heard that, I thought immediately of Eric Garner or the, the black male in Paris that they were just uh, writing about or Abner Louima. Uh, when I say Eric Garner, he was choked by the police in New York. But before that, he uh, wrote, documented a report where he said that he had been stopped by enforcement officers, NYPD, and he had been subjected to an anal cavity search in broad daylight, middle of the street. Same thing. Uh, so black males today or back then with Luke, not able to protect themselves. or That's what racism, white supremacy means. Um, when... The portion that says Luke's master treats him like a black woman. Jacobs does not go so far, however, as to label Luke as feminine or womanly. Her politics of black womanhood do not allow for feminine or womanly men. I just thought that was interesting the way it was worded in that way. Uh, his white enslaver raping him uh, is treating him like a black woman. Um, and I'm not, it, that might be accurate. That might be the best way to say it. I just thought that was interesting phrasing. Um, the next portion, for example, Jacobs describes Peter, the black man who assists her in her final escape as a brave, enterprising, noble hearted man who was a chattel. Technically speaking, Peter is a slave like Luke. It just I had Mr. Fuller's voice echoing in my head. What's the difference between a dignified slave and a silly slave? One is dignified. <laughs> one is silly. I mean, just, you know, yeah, that's nice, you know, that he helped Whoopi, But, you know, you're still on the plantation, too. Um, let's see. Uh, I didn't, I have not read Harriet Jacobs. I was thinking that's one we should read for the book club, but, uh, I did not get the part about Luke escaping where he says Luke is sexually violated though does not mean that he is not brave, enterprising or intelligent. His escape from slavery indicates that on some level he maintained a reserve of bravery and enterprise that allowed him to outsmart local patty rollers and slave catchers. I thought he did not escape, but I guess 
of saying, uh, I guess he did escape. Uh, I thought he was stuck there, but like I said, I haven't read this, so maybe I just need to go read the book and I'll be clear about all that. Um, let's see. Moving forward. Yeah, that portion came up again. I think it's stated explicitly where it says, though raped black women, she contends, were psychologically warped. Their sexual violation does not lead to a subtraction from their persons. The implicit reference here is the castrated or emasculated black male. She continues, no matter the father of her children, she still was able to fulfill in spite of the conditions under which the fulfillment was carried out. Her traditional role as woman within the society that of bearer of children the black male on the other hand could only envision his worth in intangible ways i think that <clears throat> just a a maybe uh more detailed explanation of what the the position that some of our listeners have taken uh also uh Boyd Alive, we already got one of those depictions. Uh, and just the Kentucky aspect, I think we've had enough stories of white people diluting, minimizing slavery when the omissions of all of the things, the, the rape of males and boiling of children and cannibalism and all of the things that get omitted, just think, keep that in mind the next time that you hear someone say that, oh, this was a kindly slave master. He wasn't that bad. You know, they gave out extra watermelon on the weekends. Um, let's see. The passage about the pork I thought was incredible. I appreciated Emmy's commentary uh, as well. But when uh, when they described this punishment of having a black person being hung literally uh, above ground and having pork boiled above them or cooked above them so that the fat is dripping down on the black person and then contrasting that with seasoning food seasoning that word again with a piece of fat like oh I just thought that was was brilliant comparison and again enforcing the main theme of of consumption uh, of black people uh, old black joke going back to Dr. Welsing at the beginning uh, let's see anything else I want to make sure I get in before I think I will rest there that way folks if, if any extra commentary folks need to get in before we conclude we'll have time to do so uh anything else folks wanted to share before we wrap up uh yes can i be heard yes sir uh thank you so much guys you made some very salient points as did the other callers i appreciate each and every one of you because I, I always listen back to the um reading usually the day or two after afterwards just to reabsorb it and you guys are just, just expanding my consciousness exponentially and i appreciate it um, on page uh, 139, she writes something. He writes something very uh, powerful, in my opinion. He says, uh, "Harris raises several illuminating and useful points. First, she points to an implicit sexual politics run within Black uplift ideology. According to these politics, Black people have historically identified Black women with the womb, with reproduction, while they have identified Black men with the penis or phallic agency." After slavery, lynching and castration came to symbolize black masculinity and male violation. The raped wife and maternal figure, examples of which proliferate enslaved narratives and abolitionist writings, came to signify the defilement of black womanhood. And what I find most telling about that is when they describe the, um, the idea that after slavery, that black masculinity was symbolized by male violation, um, it just really speaks to me to epigenetics 
and how if what black masculinity meant was castration and sexual abuse, then ultimately it facilitates the psychology of making more anti-sexual black males or facilitating them being groomed in that direction, even possibly by their mothers or family members in order to facilitate their survival. No different than now you find in Africa elephants being born without, uh, without uh, tusks due to the excessive poaching. They have been epigenetically changed to no longer grow tusks. And I find that to, to me to speak to that, that epigenetic aspect to the homo, homosexualization of uh, black males. Um, there was a brief section on page 142 towards the bottom where he says, of his many styles of punishment, yeah, this is the one where he speaks about the, the fat dripping upon him. I found that fascinating as well because in the ancestry, in my ancestry, um, I have carried, uh, black Native American carib Indian blood in Trinidad. And one thing they used to do to white people, um, which is where the word barbecue comes from, is they would cook a living white man over an open fire which is the term they used was barbacoa, which has now become barbecue. And that's the origin of that term is the carib word. And I just found that to be fascinating because when the carib started doing it, it was in response to what white supremacy was doing to them. And that was their response. So I found that to be a very powerful part of the text. And <clears throat> excuse me, lastly, on the following page, they write, he writes, um, rather than the typical process of fattening up a food source, the inverted man conveys how starvation and hunger induction makes the slave ready for consumption. The master demonstrates that the slave is an emotional and physical food source by situating him within an inverted cooking scenario. The master situates the slave below the cooking fire and is called in grease used to season and temper his flesh. In another less graphic example, Jacobs depicts what happens to a man on a plantation caught stealing food. His master chains him to a tree beats him and then starves him to the point of visible emaciation. If a slave stole from him, the master, even a pound of meat or a peck of corn, if detection followed, he was put in chains and imprisoned and so kept until his form was attenuated by hunger and suffering. And what I find is that the white person is, in that instance is doing a form of voyeuristic consumption. So he's eating the slave in the form of the slave's body eating itself from being physically starved. And it's actually showing up in the form of him becoming emaciated, but, but that's really the master's doing. So the master is actually the one consuming him by forcing him to consume himself. And that is just the most twisted, psychologically debased thing that I've ever seen. And it's just further reinforces that we have to really do something about white people. Thank you. And I'll meet my life. Here, here. The problem is white people. Um, anything else folks want to get in before we conclude or folks satisfied? Can I be heard just before we end really quick? Yes, ma'am. After listening to some of the things that you, you said and I heard it back, because I have felt that there's been something peculiar or different or special or unique. Um, but one of the things that I'm going to consider in the rest of the reading of the text and then make my final conclusions when we conclude is, is there really a difference between male and female rape and male and male rape? Like, is there really a difference? Or is the difference that we've been so conditioned to assume that rape between a male and a female is just not as bad? But, I mean, I'm female, and if it's a, you know, I, I'm not a man or I'm not a male, so, you know, I know there's a lot that comes with that, but I'm saying is there really a difference? Or is it just we've been so conditioned to think that there's a difference and one is worse than the other? They're both 
heinous violations um, because I've held that opinion myself. So I'll just put that out there. Maybe other people will consider it when we, you know, conclude, we'll see, you know, what the consensus is. And then I'm glad that you said the, uh, there was the quote that I can't read back because I'm driving, but the, um, about the black female still being able to fulfill her function. Uh, I don't know that that means that we as black females like still felt, I understand what the author is saying, but I'm not so sure that I agree. And I just have to put that on the books. It's something I'm going to consider. I'm up in the air about that um, because that's just biological, like sperm, egg, babies, nine months later, boom. Also, that's something that like she kind of had to do uh, because that was mandated of her by the system. So I don't know, like that's like, there's a whole element to that just because I give birth doesn't mean that I still feel like a woman. I'm just female, like, and I'm producing more slaves for white people. So I could be incorrect. I will remember that I said this and in my final conclusions, like really see how I feel about that. But it seems I'm not so sure that it's like, accepting something that really is unacceptable at the moment so i hope other people will consider because i really do i'm interested to know what other people say so thanks grand we will wrap there for the day and pick up we'll be next week picking up in chapter four uh, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. We'll be here tomorrow. Compensatory call in at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Pacific. Looking forward, reviewing what's taken place over the last seven days. If anybody has seen Get Out, not that I encourage going to the movies, feel free to give us uh, the rundown on uh, what it uh, what you saw. Uh, if you if you go see it, not an endorsement. I just suspect that we do have some listeners who might be going to the movies this weekend. With that, thanks everyone for tuning in. I hope it has been a constructive investment of your Friday evening. Uh, I will state again uh, this whole weekend. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Uh, I'd have seen no evidence that being under the influence of tobacco, alcohol, cannabis, any other toxins that whites come up with I've seen no evidence that consuming those substances will help us neutralize Darren Wilson Daniel Holtzclaw any other race soldiers badge or no uh, I think Dr. Welsing she would want our brain computers operating at maximum efficiency under or us being sober that's what I think she would encourage it Started off the uh, broadcast this evening with the words of Dr. Welsing. Invoke her name again. Uh, thanks for tuning in. If you have questions, problems, can't find something in the archives, drop us an email untiljustice at gmail.com. Guest suggestions as well, untiljustice at gmail.com. Thank you kindly for tuning in. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all.
for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.